In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory to thee, our God. Glory to thee, heavenly King, our comfort of the Spirit of truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, our treasure of every good and bestower of life. Come and dwell in us and cleanse us from every stain and save our souls, our good one. We are now up to part three of this wonderful um, life of saint. Last talk, I was, um, I had a thought that perhaps that I had too many letters in there and that people were getting confused or that it was uh, boring or I wasn't sure, even though I found it very interesting. But as an audience, I didn't know how it was taken. I was very impressed that at the end of the talk, three people, maybe even four, came up to me and were asking questions and they said, did did because we remember that Saint Nectarius wrote a number of letters to different patriarchs asking that he that he, that the injustice done to him be fixed up. One of them was Patriarch Sophronios of Alexandria, which was the one who actually threw him out of Egypt, and and he was the cause of all of that. And people came up to me and said, did because I said that he actually wrote a letter to him, and people said to me, did he answer him? And, I, and I, was, I was very impressed with that because I forgot to say that he didn't answer him. But that meant that people were actually concentrating. And then he sent two letters to the new Patriarch of Alexandria, which was Patriarch Fortios, and he ignored those letters. Then he sent a letter to Patriarch Joachim of Constantinople. Now, if you remember in that talk uh, that I said that some books actually say that Patriarch Joachim did not have the courage to stand up for Saint Nectarius, but he did write, sorry, he did send a one of his priests or someone and verbally said to Saint Nectarius that the Patriarch says to keep on going at Rosaria's school for the time being. But he never really went against the Queen of Greece, Olga, and he never went against Patriarch of, of um, Alexandria. And while I was doing that, I was actually in a way justifying him without really knowing much about him. But since then, as I was saying, perhaps it's because of his political position there that he was under the Turks and he didn't want to cause problems with the other patriarchs. Then I found a, a very nice note here about Patriarch Joachim. So the, the note that I found was that Patriarch Joachim was considered faithful, pious, quite educated, an energetic person, meaning that he did a lot of work for the church, and he was a very compassionate person. He gave alms generously to the poor, and he also strengthened the bond of Constantinople with other churches, because remember that because Constantinople was under the Turks, they were kind of cut off from the rest of the world. It was a little bit hard to communicate. But he, he wanted the bonds with the other Orthodox churches to be close, and especially with Russia. According to some, 
He was one of the greatest patriarchs after the fall of Constantinople in 1453. He's characterized of great mind. He had a, like a great mind, like very intelligent, majesty and great accomplishments. So without knowing that, I found that I was defending because even though he didn't fix up the problem with St. Nectarius, he still sent a message and he still called, he still was favourable towards him, he wasn't against him, but his situation was that he couldn't help at that time because if he did, he would have caused problems with Greece because the Queen of Greece at that time was a Russian and he didn't want to cause problems with the Patriarch of Alexandria. After so many years, the injustice which had been done to St. Nectarius in Alexandria had not been resolved. So we left off at that, that he was expelled without reason from Egypt and became a bishop without of diocese. If you were here last month, you will remember that was the pain that St. Nectarius had, that he was unjustly thrown out. And as it says, it was never heard in the history of the church for there to be a bishop connected to no diocese, nothing. And that bothered him. He didn't like that. And that's why he wrote all those letters, etc. But those who listen to the talk will know that. In this talk, we begin at 1903. The saint was now 57 years old. That was, as we remember, Patriarch Joachim advised Saint Nectarius to continue as Dean of the Rosarius Ecclesiastical School for Boys there. And the saint felt that he had tried all that he could to clear his name and to be recognised as a bishop of the Orthodox Church. If you, that's, that's what we left off last time. He decided to take the advice of Patriarch Joachim of Constantinople and continue as Dean of the School for the time being. Once again, he thought about retiring to a monastery where he could devote his life to God in prayer and strict asceticism. He wanted to lead the life of a hesychist. Now, some of you don't know what that means. A hesychist is someone who is pretty much lives in quietness, is not doesn't have many people around, if at all, and they do the Jesus prayer, they lead an inner life, and they, what, what, what we call, they, uh, they have unceasing noetic prayer, or that's what their aim is. He now began to pray to God in the Theotokos to help him find the monastery to retire. This had happened a number of times in his life. If you remember, even from talk one on this life, talk 49, and part, that was part one, and part two, I'll go through them. In part one, if we remember that when St. Nectarius was in Constantinople, remember that at 14 he left to go and get a job and study in Constantinople, and then uh, he lived there for six years. During that time, he began to lead a deeper spiritual life. And the deeper that he started leading that life, the more he started feeling that he wants to be united with Christ continually, and he knew that this can be only done in the monastic life. So he was torn between his childhood dream of being a preacher, of serving the church, but he also had this other desire of wanting to become 
a monastic to lead a deep life. So he had those two things. After he left Constantinople at 20 years old, he went to Chios, which is an island of Greece. And he, 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 there he taught as a teacher. He, he taught in a, in a school, even though he, hasn't, he didn't even finish high school himself, but he taught the lower grades. And he taught for seven years, and then he went to a monastery. Again, while he was in the monastery, he was torn between, should I become a preacher or should I go and lead a deeper spiritual life? The more he progressed, the more he wanted to, as I said, to be united with God. And then in the last talk, part two of the life, we saw that after he was expelled from Egypt and he went to Athens, what was the first thought he had? Was to go to Mount Athos and become uh, and lead an, uh, an ascetical life. He was already a monk, but he wanted to lead a deeper life, going somewhere in Manathos into the desert and lead th those um, lives like the ascetics. But he was encouraged to stay in the world and serve the church through his preaching and spiritual guidance. People were saying, no, don't go there. The orthodoxy is in a very bad state. The Greek people that you know recently had come out from the Turks are ignorant and they need someone to preach and guide, etc. So he decided to stay. Then, when he became a preacher in Evia, which is an island of Greece, and if you remember, when they were abusing him in the church because they thought that he was immoral because people had slandered him, the first sermon they did it. The second sermon the next week they did it again. The people were calling out and calling him names and things. And he had a thought again, should I just leave? Maybe it's not God's will for me to serve the, in the world as a, as a preacher. Maybe I should just go to a monastery. So he had another thought there again, to leave the world and go to Manathos. But on the third time, people um, changed. He was continually drawn to the deeper monastic life. However, he would always put it off because he could see that the people had need of his sermons, writings and guidance. Now we shall look at the saint's attitude in general about monasticism. That's very important for the rest of the talk. During that time that, saint, that we're talking about, this 1903, uh, there was a great persecution of monasticism in Greece. Hundreds of monasteries had already been closed because the, you know, these kings that they had and all that, the ones, the first ones after, they, after the Greeks got Greece back, some of their kings were actually Protestant, they weren't even Orthodox, and they had this, uh, this hate towards monasticism. You see, when, when evil seems to be kind of um, triumphing, as we say, like when, the, when evil has got the, the, uh, the power to do, to, to do bad, what happens then is the first thing that gets hit are the monasteries. So in Russia, when communism came, the first thing they hit was the monasteries. Why? Because the devil, who was controlling these people, made them to go against the monasteries because the devil knows that the monasteries are the most important part of orthodoxy. All our tradition, our services, a lot, all came out of monasticism. So let's see what he said. He was very upset over the decline of the monasteries at Manathos because a lot of the, the number of monks at Manathos were decreasing. That he didn't like that, 
Saint Nectarius opposed all this by continually preaching that monasticism is the crown of Christianity. In other words, that monasticism is the backbone of the Orthodox Church. All of us have backbones. If, our, if we don't have a backbone, what happens? We just fall to the ground. It's the backbone which keeps us up. It's the backbone, our spine, which helps us to move and to walk, etc., and do what we do. Orthodoxy's backbone is monasticism. That's what makes orthodoxy strong, monasticism. His love for monasticism was so great that he desired with all his heart to help establish new monasteries that would become spiritual centres of orthodoxy. But he felt that he lacked the strength and power to do this. So his desire was to have to, to be able to open up monasteries all over Greece. For this reason, he would often pray for the flourishing of Orthodox monasticism in Greece, and he would also serve Paraclesis or Melebans to the most holy Theotokos with the students of the school. He would gather the students and say to them, okay, boys, we, 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 um, I want to do a Paraclesis to the Mother of God for the flourishing of monasticism. So, when you come across any clergyman or bishop, whatever, who's anti-monastic, that means they're anti-orthodox. Today, unfortunately, there's a lot of them. Even though he was praying to find a monastery that he could retire to, he continued to serve the church as he always did. As I said before, he continued as, a de as, as dean. He already had spent... He had already been a dean for 10 years, where we, where we are now. There's another five to go, actually. As mentioned in the previous talk, many people were attracted to the Holy Nectarius' inspiring sermons. They would come to the school chapel to hear him preach in the Sunday liturgies. Remember I said last time that they even had to give out tickets because there was just so many people. So people used to gather on Friday afternoons at the school, hoping to, to get a ticket. So with that ticket, they were able to go into the, to the chapel on the Sundays. Or he would also be invited to preach in, the, in Athens, in other parishes in Athens, and in the nearby city of Piraeus, which is just adjacent. Uh, many also would come to the Holy One to receive spiritual guidance and, conf and to confess their sins. So not only did he preach... Not only did he um, take care of the students, but he also was a spiritual father and confessed many, many people. A blind woman named Chrysanthi was introduced to the saint by a woman who knew him. So some woman already knew the saint, and she said to this blind girl, this blind lady there, a young lady, come and, um, come and meet this holy person. The Holy One was very impressed with her humility and could see that she was filled with many gifts of the Holy Spirit. What are the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Love, humility, faith, patience, etc. As an infant, how did she become blind? As an infant, she fell ill with typhoid fever. The doctor informed the family that she was going to die and that the only cure that existed at the time was a certain injection that would leave her blind. 
So the, her, her parents had an option. If they want her to live, then she has to be given this inject, injection, but she'll go blind. If they don't give her the injection, she'll die. And they chose, of course, to give her the injection, but then she became blind. Chrysanthi was so moved by Metropolitan Nectaris' sanctity that she encouraged her pious friends, Katerina, Eleni, and Geliki, to meet him. So she had some friends and said to them, let's go, I'm, come and meet this holy person that I've met. They all began to confess to him. Not only did they confess to him, but they also were spiritually guided by him, thus becoming dedicated spiritual children. Chrysanthi was an embroiderer. Eleni was a nurse. Another worker was a, another one worked as a housemaid. Another one was a dressmaker. The four of them would often meet to read the Bible together, chant hymns, pray, and have religious discussions. They would also often speak about their holy spiritual father's virtues and works. So that's a very good example for people today. If you're orthodox, you and you want to lead a spiritual life, then you then you associate, you hang around, as we say, with people of the same interests. But today I come across a lot of people who are orthodox, but their friends are not only they're not only that, that they're not orthodox, but they're also leading immoral lives. So what happens is show me your friends and I'll see what type of person you are. So these people slowly, slowly fall into clubs, sexual sins, etc., 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 and they lose themselves. But we see the examples of saint of these saints, of these holy people, and Saint Nectarius, that when he was in living in Constantinople, if you remember, from part one of the talk, forty nine number talk forty nine, that he actually it said there in his life that he didn't associate with uh, anyone else except for those who were leading spiritual lives and he concentrated on his soul. He didn't want to, he didn't want to uh, fall. And at that time, don't think that people weren't falling to sin. People were able to go to um, taverns and drink and get drunk and other things that they did like, like, like today. It was during these discussions that these women made a decision to become nuns. They decided to seek the guidance of their spiritual father, the Holy Nectarius, regarding this matter. Together with another girl, Maria, they visited him in his office at the school. The five of them uh, informed him that they all wanted to become nuns. The Holy One was at first shocked. He then explained to them the difficulties of monastic life. He said monasticism is a lot of fasting, strict obedience, temptations, afflictions, poverty and sufferings. He actually said that once they take their monastic vows, once they become like uh, nuns, a million temptations would automatically arise. Further, he said, that punishment would await them were they to change their minds and leave monasticism. In other words, if they were to become nuns, have their names changed, etc., and then later on say... I've changed my mind, I want to take the black off now, I want to go back into the world, he said here, that great punishment awaits them. What do we notice here? This part is a very, very interesting part. 
Because a lot of times people even say to me, they say, oh, you're always negative, you always talk about negative, you know. But yet here, the saint didn't say to them, you want to become nuns. Oh, yes, you'll be full of grace, you will, be, you will have the Holy Spirit, you will have your joy and peace and this and that, etc. He didn't say that. The first thing he said to them was, there's a lot of fasting, strict obedience, temptations, afflictions, poverty and sufferings, and if you change your mind and leave, then you'll be punished. Actually, the canons say, if a person becomes a monastic, a schema, and then they leave, they go into the world, they get married and have children, say a man, for example, then the canons say that they have to leave the world, have to leave their children and go back to the monastery. You can't undo the tonsure. There are bishops today that say, oh, well, you've changed your mind, that's okay, you can get married. That's their business, but the point is that uh, the church canons forbid that. So, St. Nectarius didn't speak about all these great things straight away, but he said to them the truth. Because people today, they say, oh, no, you know, you, you for example, I might say to someone, um, they say, oh, I want to become orthodox. I want to be baptised. I said, okay, well, you have to realise that once you're baptised, that, or even before, but especially when you're baptised, you go through temptations. Oh, negative. Then you might, someone says, I want to get married. I say, marriage, yes, it's blessed, but you have to understand it's an arena, like I said last, last talk. It's an arena. It's actually very difficult. And you have to be especially strong mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and somewhat physically too, because how are you going to have children if you're uh, sick? So people say, oh, negative, negative, I'll go find someone else that will say to me that it's what I, what I want to hear, that you're going to have a beautiful time, you're going to get married, you're going to be in love, and eat bananas together, and you're going to have really good times and hold hands continually, etc. Not understanding that, as St. John Chrysostom says, that within about a year, pretty much, that, that love, that initial enthusiasm dies out. Even the sexual aspect dies out. Oh, didn't people say not negative? Well, that's okay. You go and find the positive then. He then asked them if they had decided which monastery they wanted to enter. They said that they had looked at a few monasteries but found them all unsuitable. The saint encouraged the five women to visit him often at the school so that he could uh, guide them towards their goal of monasticism. Because you need guidance. You just People don't just say, oh, I'm going to go and become a monk or a nun. You need guidance. From then on, the Holy One prayed for their spiritual progress, and that they be helped to find a monastery somewhere near Athens. Probably he wanted to be near Athens so that he can have contact with them. He actually gave them passes because um, I think at the end to get into the school, because a lot of people wanted to see the saint, it, became, it caused a lot of disruption. So 
they had to, people had to get permission to come. So, but he gave them passes so that they can come and go whenever they wanted. By this time, the saint had been directing the school for 10 years with great success. Despite this, there were still those who criticised the Holy One's running of the school. Remember that last time. At that time, a new trustee was appointed. In the last talk, I, we learnt that the school was under the authority of three trustees. They would collect it every four years and they would have full control of the school. This man convinced one of the students to spy for him. He wanted him to report anything that was happening in the school. Knowing that he would receive benefit from the trustee, the student happily carried out this deceitful task. So the trustee said to him, I want you to spy for me. You go around, bring back reports about the teachers, about the students, anything, etc. So, on one occasion, this student reported back to the trustee that many of the students were complaining about the food at the school. Remember, these kids were boarders. He also said that the dean, meaning St Nectarius, was spending considerable time with five poor young women. Basically, he implied that the dean was too busy with them, that because he was too busy with them, he was neglecting his duty of supervising the school's food. The trustee called the Holy Nectarius to his office and in front of the secretary of the school reprimanded him for concerning himself with five peasant women and for giving them passes to see him often. He brought up the complaints regarding the food and that this was due to him being distracted by the peasant women. He goes, you're, you're involving yourself with these peasants, these women, these, why are, you, why are you doing that? Your job is to be dean of the school and you're neglecting your duties. The saint remained silent during the trustee's reprimand. As he was telling him off, he said nothing. And this is characteristic of St. Nectarius. We'll see it right through this talk. It just doesn't, 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 doesn't hardly answer at all. And I was very impressed with that because when someone tells us off, we want to argue. See, a lot of us are like arguing. It's a passion. It's actually demonic. Argue, 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 argue. But we see the saints didn't argue. Christ didn't argue. So when he was in front of Pilate, or Herod first, he never didn't answer him at all. When he was in front of Pilate, he just said to him one sentence, that's about it. Why? Well, Herod was, wasn't interested in the truth, so Christ said, if he's not interested in the truth, why should I talk to him? And with, the, and with Pilate, he was a little bit, you know, he was saying, what is the truth? A little bit, kind of, there was something there, so Christ gave him a little bit according to his interest. When someone showed no interest, Christ didn't speak at all. So St. Nectarius is saying, what's the point in talking back to this man when he's not interested in the truth, he's not interested in what's happening, he just, he's just screaming like a mad person, so he remains silent. That's a good example for us. Sometimes silence is better. The saint remained silent during the trustees' reprimand. He was very upset that he was being told not to help these five women who desired to become nuns. How could he turn them away when it was they who asked for help from him, for, you know, they asked him help to be guided. He made a decision that he would not abandon them. And one can say, why wasn't he obedient? Because he was the trustees are in charge of the school. Yes, he's the dean, but they're the trustees. Why wasn't he obedient? Because his conscience didn't allow it. So it's the same. 
Women to be obedient to their husbands. Yes, as long as what he's telling you is not against God's commandments. And men should be obedient to their wives in a lot of ways too, but not if it's against the con against conscience. At work, the same thing. If someone's telling us to do something which is against our conscience, against God's commandments, then we are disobedient. If the government tells us to do something which is against our conscience, in other words, against God's commandments, we don't do it. So in this case, St. Nectarius felt that this was against his conscience. He felt that he could not leave these women and needed, that, that needed his help. The young women visited Egina, an island not far from Piraeus, by ferry boat. Now, some of you that are Greek would know that Egina is an island where you go to the, to the port of Piraeus and there you can catch a boat, a ferry boat, or a hydrofoil, which goes quicker. It's not a very, I don't know how much, uh, it's about 30 minutes maybe by the boat, by the hydrofoil maybe. So it's not, it's not, it's a very close island. They had heard that there were many small abandoned monasteries and churches on the island. One of these was an old and deserted monastery in ruins which consisted of a little chapel and two old cells. Cells are rooms that the monks or nuns live in. It was approximately six and a half kilometres from where the ferry docked at the main town. It was difficult to get there. It took them approximately two hours by foot using small paths through thick and wild shrubs and at times dangerous cliffs. So that they worked their way up, was up, uphill, and that's where this abandoned monastery was. Remember, a lot of places in Greece in those days, there was no roads, that everything was through, through um, donkey tracks. Even where my mother's village is in, in, um, in Greece there, like... Um, a lot of it was there was no roads. Just they, they used to get everywhere with donkey or walking. It was only in the 1960s, I think, when they started having more roads in Greece. When they arrived at the site, they felt that this was the place that God wanted them to be. The area of this abandoned monastery was called Xantos. X-A-N-T-O-S. I haven't got a Greek word to know whether... Stresses, Xantos, Xantos, I don't know. Anyway, on arriving back to Athens, two of the girls, Chrysanthi and Katerina, the blind one and the other girl, visited the saint in his office at the school and joyously informed him that they had finally found a place where they could dedicate their life to God in holy monasticism. The saint of God was overjoyed with the news. However, when the women described that the area was isolated in the mountains, hard to get to, his face dropped. Uh, he didn't like the fact that it was in the mountains high there. He didn't like it was isolated. He didn't like that it was difficult to get there. And he didn't like the fact that it was far away from the town. Why? Why did he become disturbed? The reason for this was that he feared that the women would be in danger of falling victims to robbers and rapists. He asked them to return to Ayana and to re-look at the area. So he was concerned. Now, we have these religious freaks that actually say things like, God will protect. I'll walk in the street at 12 o'clock in the night. I'll do my cross. Nothing will happen to me. And when they get smashed with an iron bar over their head, they wonder what happened there. And the reason being, yes, God protects us when there's no other help. But we like... 
people say, why should I get an alarm on my house? Or why should I get security? Or why should I get this? Because that is the human side of things. Humanly, we do what's necessary. We live on earth, we have bodies, and therefore we have to use the human side. And then later on, we leave the rest to God. If a thief decides to come through the roof, that's when we say, God, protect us. Or if we are abandoned somewhere, like say, for example, we're driving along in our car and then all of a sudden the car breaks down and we're in somewhere in a dark area, then yes, pray to God to be protected because it's not your fault, it's just the car broke down. But you don't go into dangerous areas and then like a freak say, oh, I'm going to be protected. So St. Nectarius didn't have that attitude. He goes, this is it sounds dangerous to me. This is, this is a saying of God and he's saying, I'm worried. The women returned from Ergina, so they went. The women returned from Ergina and once again uh, expressed to the Holy Nectarius that they believed that this was where they wanted to be, where God had guided them. After this, with the blessing of Metropolitan Theoklitos, which was the, yeah, I made a mistake last time, I think I was saying Archbishop Germanos, but up to that time they weren't called Archbishops, they were still called Metropolitans, but they're the, they're the head of the Synod. So it's called, uh, this new one, the new head of the Synod of Greece, was Metropolitan Theoklitos of Athens. And this island was under his jurisdiction, therefore the saint had to go to him to get permission to do anything, with, to do a build a monastery or anything. So after this, with the blessing of Metropolitan Theoklitos of Athens, he decided to visit Aegina to see the location of the ruined monastery for himself. However, he was prevented from doing this because he became sick for two weeks. Uh, so the reason for that, this is a little interesting story quickly, the school janitor had fallen very ill and was taken to the hospital for surgery on his kidneys. The doctor said that he would, not, he would be unable to return to work for at least two and a half months. The Holy Nectarius felt sorry for him and became concerned that he would lose his job, that the janitor would lose his job, because in those days there was no, like, like, like it is today, there was no pensions, no superannuation, no unemployment, no sickness benefit. It was really not very good. So he did, now it's the opposite in Greece, where now everything's pensions. So he decided to wake up very early in the morning and secretly carry out the janitor's duties, which consisted of cleaning the toilets and the floors. When the school secretary asked the dean, meaning asked St Nectarius, whom he had replaced as janitor, so the, the secretary said, now that the janitor's sick, who did you get to do the job of the janitor? And the saint replied, with someone I trust, meaning himself. One day, the, but, the, but the secretary didn't know that. One day, the janitor visited the school, after he got a bit better, but just to see what's happening there and all that, and who had replaced him. Even though he wasn't ready, but he was able to go to the school. He was shocked to see the aged old holy bishop, now 58 years old, on his hands and knees with his rason, meaning the black gowns, pulled up, scrubbing the floor in the toilets. He started shaking at the sight. The bishop calmed him and said, don't worry, my child, I will not be taking your job. A little bit of a joke. 
I'm just covering for you until you can come back to work. You are in need of money because you had a family. Woe to us if our hearts were that cold and hard. That one, I love that part. Woe to us, meaning he was talking about him, him like, how can I, he's saying, as an Orthodox Christian and even a bishop, know that you've got this problem that you're going to lose your job, how are you going to feed your family? How could we be so how can I be so cold and hard of heart? Give me your word that you will keep this a secret for as long as I live, said the saint. The janitor fell to his knees and kissed the bishop's rason, meaning his black um, rason. So after the Holy Nectarius recovered from his illness, which he got, as I said, he got sick because he was doing this work, he was now able to travel. So on the 10th of September 1904, he left Perez for Eyna on the ferry boat, accompanied by three of the pious women. Just five of them, remember? He went with three. Before the ferry boat arrived at Eyna, a supernatural event took place at the main town. Now, a 15-year-old boy named Spiro was shouting, the bishop is coming, go and greet him, he's coming to save the island, he shall build the church and start the largest monastery, end quote. So this boy was saying prophecies, in like, like he was saying that firstly, he knew that the bishop is coming without knowing, he was telling people go out and greet him. He said that he's coming to save the island, which we'll see why in a minute, what he meant by saving the island. Uh, oh, I can tell you a little bit. They, they had a very bad drought. There was no, they hadn't rained for years. He also said that he shall build the church and start the largest monastery. Many people gathered around him to hear what he was saying. Some of them laughed at him, while others were trying to understand what he meant. The town's priest, Father Michael, was informed of this and he quickly went to see what was happening with the boy. When he arrived, he found Spiro lying on the ground shouting, The bishop from Rosarius is coming. That's the name of the school. God has shown pity on this island. The bishop of Pentapolis is coming. The boy was known all around the island as being possessed and for often predicting the future. All of a sudden, he started frothing at the mouth. At that moment, the ferry boat from Piraeus was entering the port. Father Michael noticed a special... They didn't know what he was talking about, by the way. Father Michael noticed the special flag had been raised to indicate that someone important was on the boat. So the practice was that when the ferry boat was coming into the uh, port there in Eyna, that the, if the flag was um, raised high, then someone important was on the boat. So... As the passengers began to leave the ferry boat, the priest, to his surprise, saw the Metropolitan of Pentapolis, the Dean of Rosario's School, who was well known for his sermons. He received his blessing. The Holy Nectarius informed the priest of the reason for his visit to the island. He was telling him, I've come here to look for a monastery, etc. Father Michael then related to the saint the event concerning Spiro. The saint asked to see him. When he approached the boy, he heard him cry out, the bishop is coming to save the island, he will build the church and will establish the largest monastery. 
The saint went up to the boy, as in the picture there, in, in, which will also be on the front cover of, the, of this talk. The saint went up to the boy and lifted up his bishop's staff, which is the, the rod that they hold, and prayed. And he quote, this is what the saint said, spirit of divination. Divination is those who, spirit of those who tell the future or things like that. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, the crucified, to come forth. The wicked and unclean spirit dwelling in the boy left him. Then the youth stood up and opened his eyes, bowed and kissed the bishop's hand. Saint Nectarius spoke to him kindly. Spiro said that he had suffered with convulsions and because of this had to leave school. The saint said, you will no longer be bothered by convulsions. convulsions. The Holy One then advised him to return to school. He then blessed him. The crowd who witnessed the miracle stood in amazement. They had never seen such a miracle before. Before I talk a little bit about that, I'm going to read from the Acts of the Apostle exactly the same thing. The Acts of the Apostle, which is the, uh, in the Bible, the New Testament. And it says in there, Now it happened, as we went to pray, that a certain slave girl, possessed with the spirit of divination, met us, who brought her master's much profit by fortune-telling. The girl followed Paul, it's Apostle Paul, and us, and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days, but Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And, it came, and he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. This is pretty much what Saint Nick did the same thing. Now, Demons don't know the future. I've said this before. And this is very important. Now, these, in the Acts of the Apostle, this woman was possessed. Because it says here, a certain girl possessed with the spirit of divination. There were, people get possessed in different ways. Sometimes people get possessed where they can't speak. Sometimes they get possessed where they can't hear. There's all different things. Some of them have the spirit of divination where they tell you things. They tell you your name, they tell you how many children you've got, and it still happens today. Um, but the saints of God say, the church teaches that they don't know the future. Let's go to the Acts of the Apostle. Firstly, Apostles, why did the devil himself say, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation, which is true, by the way, they were servants of the Most High God, St. Paul and those who were with him. And they did come to announce to the people there the way of salvation, which is Christ. Why did the devil tell the people such a thing? Wouldn't one say that the devil wants the people to go away from the apostles? The answer to that is very simple for those who come to the talks, those who read books, those who listen to, you know, you have to know your faith. The devil at this, who, was, who had possessed this girl, he knew, obviously, as a spirit, who they were and what they were there for. He's a spirit. 
He can travel. He knows what's, what's happening at what's happening now. And he wanted, he actually said some truth because as we know, in Russia and in Greece, when people get possessed, they start blurting out things. They say a number of things, some true and some false. By saying something true, the people listen to that and say, oh, that girl was correct because they actually are preaching. They are servants of God. They're doing miracles and they're preaching about salvation. So that means that when this girl says something else, which is really the devil, then we'll believe, them, we'll believe her every time. So that's why, as I said, in Greece or in Russia or wherever there's possessed people when they blurt out everything, they mix some truth and falsehood. They get some things right so people can trust them. So dopey people go to these mediums or card readers or crystal ball people and things like that to go and find something out and then they say, oh, they knew. They knew how many children I've got. But I've spoken to a lot of these people that go and, you know, and even those things on the television where they do it, all those clairvoyants and fortune tellers and they have all these reality shows with them, there is some truth and a lot of it false. But for some people, for some reason, people tend to ignore the false part and just jump onto the truth and put all their trust in these people. The devil knew that St. Paul and those with him were going to preach and he knew they were going to do miracles and he knew that people were going to follow them and he knew that he couldn't do anything about it. He knew that. So he said, well, why not say the truth and at least when they've gone, people will remember how the girl said the truth and therefore then I'll say other stuff later on to make them, to trick them. The same here. Let's go now to this Spiro boy. Spiro was saying that the Bishop of Pandopolis is coming, the Dean of Rosarius. Well, that's a, that as a spirit, he doesn't live in Ayana. Spirits don't live in, they're not, they're not, um, what do you call it, um, restricted. Spirits can travel everywhere. And that's why the Holy Fathers say, the spirit knows, for example, that someone's relative is dying in another country and then comes to another person and says to them, oh, look, you know, your grandmother died in Russia or whatever. And then later on, five days later, they find out they died and they go, oh, it must be true then. These people can tell the future or they know things. So spirits, no. So this spirit knew that he was the bishop of Pentapolis and knew that he was of Rosario's school. And... Then he says he's going to save the island. We'll come to that later. And the other thing is that he's going to build the monastery. Well, firstly, he knew that the saint was coming there to build a monastery. That was the whole thing. He said he's going to build the greatest monastery. Well, how does he know that? He doesn't. He guesses. If he builds a big monastery, then people will say, oh, he said it. If he builds a small monastery, people will forget that he said that he built, was going to build a great monastery. People only remember a few things. So the whole thing is basically that we should never listen to people that are possessed. 
We should never listen to people that are mediums, etc., etc. It's all trickery of demonic spirits. And only the Orthodox Church knows 100% all about those tricks of them because it's all in which books? In the Orthodox books, yes, but which particular books? In the monastic books. It's monasticism which has enlightened us to know because the ascetics fought with the demons and exposed their tricks and things like that and then wrote it all down for us. The other, the other religions, unfortunately, because they've fallen away a lot from tradition, they don't know. The, that evening, the saint of God stayed at the town's hotel. He prayed all night to the Lord to help them rebuild the ruined monastery if this were his will. So he didn't go straight away to the area because it probably was too late and the commotion with the boy and all that. He stayed in the town in, the, in, a, in a little hotel there. The next morning, he arranged for some donkeys to take him and the women to Xantos, the area of the abandoned monastery, by this time, many in the town had learned about the miracle of the possessed boy Spiro and came to see the Holy Bishop. As he was leaving the town, a woman who had been hemorrhaging for six years knelt and kissed his rason, which is the cassock. Uh, because of her disease, she took the example of the woman in the Bible who was hemorrhaging and went and touched the gown of Christ. Because of her disease, she had become skin and bones. The doctors had given up, for, given up on her. St. Nectarius blessed her, and she felt that the hemorrhaging had ceased. The, the woman began to cry while giving glory to God in the Holy Theotokos. Those who witnessed the miracle were astonished. The saint and the three women continued their journey on the difficult uphill path, path to Santos. Didn't stay there to receive glory. Neither did Christ, if you read in his... Um, in the Bible, he didn't stay. He, if he ever did a miracle, he tried to do it where there wasn't many people around. And if there were people around, and then he would quickly leave, teaching us that we shouldn't seek glory. The holy Nectarius and the women, with difficulty, finally arrived at the ruined monastery. When he saw the location of the future monastery, he was very pleased. He felt that the women made the right decision in choosing this site, he felt that the area was beautiful and peaceful and perfect for them. However, he was concerned about the welfare and guidance of these young women who put their trust in him, because he's not going to be living there. They're going to be living there. The saint put his trust completely in God's hands because it was God's will, in other words, he felt for them to be there. And when something is God's will, then you have to take whatever temptations come. After making some inquiries from an old widow who lived herself nearby, he discovered that the monastery and land belonged to the local government, like what we say here in Australia, the council. It was public property. She told the saint about the desire of the pious mayor of Ayina, who wanted to see the old monastery re-established. On the following day, he visited the mayor of Ayina, whose, whose name was Dr Nicholas Pepper, so he was the mayor but he was also a doctor, to inform him 
of his intention to rebuild the abandoned monastery. He also asked the mayor to donate the property to the women. The mayor told them that for some time he had the desire to see the monastery renewed. He told them, I've always wanted that monastery to be, to, to be renewed, to become a monastery again because it was abandoned. He had been looking for an opportunity to, to, to donate the monastery and its surrounding lands and now the time had come. The mayor promised the saint and the young women that he would be most happy to donate the monastery and the surrounding land to them. On, on hearing this, the holy Nectarius and the women were overjoyed and thanked God for his mercy. The saint who also be begged the mayor to repair the two surviving cells. Remember I told you those two little rooms there? The saint said, could you please also do that? The mayor agreed to help in this also. On the day he was to leave, so he, he finished up there at the, um, the, uh, the site there, came back down on the donkeys, and then he spoke to the mayor, and the mayor said, yes, we'll give you the property, etc. On the day that he was to leave Aegean and return to Athens, he was a, as he was probably standing there waiting for the boat, he was approached by a group of people which included the pious mayor. They said to him, we believe that you have been gifted by God to work miracles. The saint replied, please don't say that. To this they said, we ask you to pray for us. Please pray that God show his mercy on us and send rain to our drying island. We, have, we heard about the miracles that you did yesterday. This is what I'm going to say now, a little note. There had been no rain on the island for three years. Because of this, the island had become so dry it began to resemble a desert. Even the trees were slowly dying. So then we go on. The saint replied, me do miracles, you're mistaken. I do not work miracles. If you are referring to the youth Spiro, then I must ask you to read the scriptures that you might understand what took place earlier was by the power and mercy of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you might say, but he did do the miracle. But the thing is that he didn't do the miracle. The miracle worked through him, but it was Christ. This is the difference between a charlatan, between someone who is deceived, and someone. When a true servant of God does a miracle, th that person believes with all his or her heart that it's Christ which performs the miracle. While the offer we are, in other words, the more we are far away from God, the more we believe that the miracle comes from us as persons. So a priest, oh, it says it here, the priest must always be a faithful servant of the Lord, obeying and carrying out the divine will. Anyway, I shall return next Sunday, God willing, and I will pray with you at your cathedral that the Lord will send an abundance of rain. The men thanked the Holy Bishop and saw him off at the, at the ferry boat. The Holy Nectarius, as he promised, so he went, back to, he went back to Athens, obviously, because he had his duties as principal of the school there. And then again, when the weekend came, he, he kept his promise and returned to Ergina on the following Sunday and attended the divine liturgy at the cathedral there in the town, the main town. Many people came from all over the island to pray with the saint of God. As he was reading the prayers, the specific prayers, 
that an Orthodox priest or bishop reads for drought. We've got prayers for everything, but there are also prayers for times of drought. I remember my mother actually when she said to me, um, when she was in the village as a young, as a young girl, that she remembers there that they had a drought. And she said that um, the priest, they did a prayers, I mean she probably uh, um, doesn't, didn't remember too well, but she just remembers that the priest did prayers because they were desperate for rain. And as soon as the prayers were done, she said that it rained. She actually remembers that. It was, it, it, she noted that. So um, during this reading, they all chanted, Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy, like we do in the service. At noon, the saint and some people went to Xantos to ex- inspect the site of the abandoned monastery. They went again. So at noon, so yes, that would be about right. The service finishes around lunchtime. They go up there, takes two hours, it's two o'clock. He then had to get back to the town by four o'clock to leave on the ferry boat back to the mainland, back to Perez. By this time, the sky was dark with clouds. Thunder and lightning followed. The Holy Nectaris boarded the ferry boat and suddenly a torrential downpour began. That was around four hours after the prayers. He returned to Athens and people... uh, So now he's... So that's the rain... He returned to Athens and people slowly began to learn about the Holy One's plan to help these young women establish a convent on Aegina. When friends asked how these women were expected to start a convent without money, the saint remarked, God will provide as I have learnt from experience. I love that part too. As I've learnt from experience. What experience did he have? Those who listened to talks part one and part two we'll see right through that, right through those two talks, how he would always trust in God for everything and would provide. Remember the time when he had no clothes and his clothes were ripped and he had the shoes were ripped and he just had no money. He asked the boss to give him more money and the boss hit him and said no. And then, then later on, God provided and some person donate, gave him secretly some clothes and money and shoes, etc. So he's, and that's not just that, right through his life. Remember the time when he was starving at the widow's little, where, where he had a little unit there, like a little, like a room that he was renting when he was in Athens, when he came from Egypt. And he was starving, he had no food, and the woman was in light and came with uh, veal soup and, and fruit and cake, etc., etc., and eggs. And, um, and he was so indebted to her and he said, you know, may God bless you and may the mother of God always protect you forever. And um, so he had experience. Blessed are those who actually experience God's help in their life and of course it's sad when people don't have that trust. All people, whether you're married or single, with children, etc., you can always see when a person has trust and when a person doesn't have trust in God. We can fast as much as we want. We can pray as much as we want. We can confess and commune. We can read, etc., etc. But you can always tell a person when they're not really leading a, a spiritual life in that in times of trouble they don't have or trust in God 
to help them. And I can't, sometimes it's a bit amazing of how people can be in the church for 20 years or 15 years or 10 years or whatever and then when there's a problem, they don't even ask for prayers, they don't go to the, they don't trust in God to help them, whether it's marriage problems, whether it's problems with their children, whether it's financial problems, etc. It's just like, it's a separate issue. And you wonder, well, what are all these fasts? What are all these things that you're doing? I remember listening to a talk that was um, a Greek talk years ago, and the priest, Father Athanasius Mitininaos, the people that listen to the talk, some people will know that, him, he was in Greece, and he actually said, how can you tell if someone is a, is a, is, is a Christian? And I was listening, I was, found that very interesting, his question, and he said, how they deal with afflictions how they deal with sufferings and problems in their life. That's how you can tell. If a person um, uh, runs and asks for God for help, especially, as I said, when there's no other solution, then that person has a relationship with God. But when we don't do that, then something's not right. I just remembered an example what the saint said here, he said that um, God will provide as I've learnt from experience. No true spiritual work is accomplished by money or relying on human effort. I remember a woman spoke to me once and she said to me that she's having trouble with her husband. Um, the husband wasn't doing his duties, he wasn't helping her, he wasn't helping with the children. He wanted to be on the internet continually, you know, those type of things anyway. And she'd been married for about, say, 10 years. And I said to her, okay, so... Um, and they're Christian, they were a Christian couple. But he had, gone, he had gone a little bit off. And that's the good thing about the marriage, you see. The marriage is that when one person's down, the other person picks up. When that person's down, the other person picks up. That's the purpose of marriage. So, I said to her, did you, uh, have you um, prayed for him? And she said to me, I've never prayed for him ever since we've been married. And I said to her, well, what does that show? She goes, it must show that I don't have any love. Because if I had love, then I would pray. Because the, because the highest love that someone has is when they're concerned about the salvation of someone's soul. That's what St. Maximus the Confessor says. The highest love is someone who cares about the other person's salvation. See, Nectarius was full of love. St. Nectarius was full of love and he cared about is the salvation of the soul. If a woman loves her husband, she'll care about the salvation of his soul and if her husband loves her wife, so this woman had not really even understood that she really had no love for her husband, if at all, and that she had never prayed. So then I explained to her to start to pray. You must pray. That's the purpose of marriage. Your husband's down now, so therefore you have to help him. So you pray for him. And she did. And lo and behold, within a few days, the husband changed. And another example of a woman whose husband had become 
uh, alcoholic, aggressive, smashing things in the house. And she was saying, I'm going to divorce this and that. And I said, do you pray for him? She goes, how do you do that? I don't know. I, I, I don't feel anything to pray for him. I go, well, to me, that means you've got no love. Because, but I want to leave because I can't take it. Okay, but even if you leave, then later on, you're going to, um, God's going to give you another cross and it's going to be heavier than the one you've got now. And you haven't even tried. You haven't even made one prayer for him. So she started to do some prayers, like Akathis or things like that. And lo and behold, he changed and he actually stopped the alcohol. So this is where we forget about prayer and things like that. The saint was also asked how he was going to help these women establish a convent considering that his health was not good and that he was approaching old age. He replied, if the establishment of this convent is according to God's will, then he will grant me health and whatever else is needed. That was the trust that he had in God. Some people say, oh, my children are becoming teenagers now. I don't think I can do it. It's just too much. There's too many problems, etc., etc." And I say, well, have you asked for God's help? They said, no. I can't do it. I can't do it. Have you asked for God's help? No. But I won't be able to take care of them. It's going to be hard because there's too many problems with the teenager. Have you asked for God's help? This is a recording. You must ask for help. And then you will um, be given the help. And as St. Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong. So St. Paul, who enlightened so many thousands of people and became the... The, one, of the, one of the chief apostles as we just celebrated a few days ago in the old calendar, the new calendar before that the, the chief apostle he said when I am weak then I am strong, meaning when I acknowledge my weakness how could, how could he have done what he did he didn't trust in his own power, he trusted in God's power, he, of course he made effort but he acknowledged I can't do it he acknowledged, how am I going to do this? How am I going to go and speak to people and all these go through all these persecutions? He acknowledged his weakness and God poured his grace onto him and gave him strength. Now, that's St. Paul. Today, a person who, who is with children or married, whatever, when there are all these problems, it's very rare for a person to say, I'm weak. Please help me. And that's this postnatal depression where people, they always say, oh, the women have got postnatal and they commit suicide and all these silly things. Why? Because these women have been brainwashed by other women with their magazines that you have to be a superwoman. Today, you have to be able to be like Ida Butras and have a job and have children and be, um, and be a, great, a great achiever, etc., and do all these things. But these are some women, some women. In general, how can you do all of those things? How can you work and take care of children and take care of the house and, and et cetera, et cetera, and all these, all these things? So these women kind of say, oh, I'm failed. I'm not like Saint Ida, and I'm different. I'm, 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 why aren't I like them? 
But in the Orthodox churches, we don't have her as a saint. We have proper saints. And in the Orthodox church, the saints say, trust in God, ask him for strength. Acknowledge your weakness. So when women come to me for, with these postnatal things and this and that, the first thing I say to them is, so can you handle it? No. Can you, so you find it difficult? Yes, that's, that's okay. That's good. We've got to that stage. You must first acknowledge that you can't do it. And then I said, now turn to God. And you know how many of them say, I can't believe how I'm now doing my work, I'm taking care of the child and this and this and that, or my children, etc. So this is, this is the world we live in. We live in a world where we are taught that everyone's strong, everyone's superwoman and superman and things like that, and they can do everything. You can see all these cartoons, people watch, they actually believe them, they actually believe it. So a lot of women believe they're superwoman, and a lot of, a lot of men believe that they're um, the Hulk or something. And they think that they can do anything that they, that, that they put their mind to. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. And that's what St. Nectarius is saying. A short time later, all five women were now were living at the site of the ruined monastery. They were living in little rooms t- together. Anyway, it was very difficult. However, they were living in extreme conditions. They occupied two rooms with low ceilings. They all slept together on rag rag carpets spread about the floor in the damp and cold. Their food consisted of legumes and dandelion greens. So for those who are Greek will know, legumes, fuck yes, and dandelion is horta. The Holy One knew that the convent could not be established without the canonical approval of the Synod of Greece. He prepared himself with prayer and fasting to visit the new metropolitan of Athens, as I mentioned before, Theokritos, to seek the Synod's approval. Again, I love that. With prayer and fasting. This is a big thing. He's going to go and speak to the, to the, to the um, head of the Greek Orthodox Church there to ask for this special thing. And he needs prayer and fasting. How did he prepare when he was doing his talks, when he used to do sermons? With prayer and fasting. How do people prepare when they're going to go towards anything of great, of spiritual, of anything, with prayer and fasting. The saint asked God to show him his will concerning the future convent. Again, we learn again here. The, this saint is continually, as in all orthodox saints, continually asks for God's will. Now, one would say, but doesn't he know he's a saint? We'll see how much he knows God's will as we go on with the talk. He prayed. This is a prayer. Please reveal to me your will through the decision of the metropo- of Metropolitan Theokritos. He's saying here, it's like you're going for a job and you say, is this job for me? It's not for me. So, we, so you pray. You say, God, show me your will. How does God show his will? Does he speak to us? No, that's, that's deception. How does he show through? Through circumstances a lot of times. So we say, if it's your will, you know, get the job. If it's not your will, let me not get the job. Is it your will to buy that property at that place? Is it a good area? I don't know. So, so pray to God. If it's not meant to be, then don't let it happen. 
and then go forward. So that's what saint, the, saint, the, the saint is saying. Prayer, fasting, he's not, doing such a, he's not just doing a little thing. He's not going to go and buy a bit of shopping at the, at the, at the supermarket. This is a big thing. Is it meant to be for this monastery to be established here? So, show me your will through the, through the metropolitan. If he says yes, I will acknowledge this as your approval for the convent. If, however, he places obstacles before me, I will assume that you are not pleased with my humble effort. With all my heart, I beg you to take care of these poor, innocent women. That's the end of his prayer there. He was granted an appointment with Metropolitan Theoklitos, who welcomed him with open arms. The Metropolitan enthusiastically listened to the Holy Nectarius' plan regarding the establishment of the convent in Egina, that's the name of the island. He also informed the Metropolitan that a pious, wealthy lady wished to build the church on the site. So he told the, the ruling bishop there of Athens, he said to him, that you know the plans, and he also said, "Look, there's a woman who's gonna who wants to donate money so that we can build the chapel because the chapel that there was all fallen apart, F- the one that was existing there, the old one." He furthermore he asked the metropolitan's permission to lay the cornerstone next year. Cornerstone means, if I, I mean I've never been to a service, but I think what happens is that when they're going to build a new church, they break the ground and then they they lay some type of little foundation there. And then there's a special prayer that's done. At, that is the start of the building of the church. I think they even there's even blessings for when someone's going to build a house as well. But this is a special prayer for the building of a church. So that's what's called laying the cornerstone. It's the start of the work to build the church. Once it's finished, then there's another service called the dedication or consecration, which we'll talk about later. So he, he asked permission that he said, and next year... I want to go there and do this special service for the start, to start the building of the new church. After hearing the story, the Metropolitan of Athens enthusiastically said, you have my blessing. I not only approve with your plan, but I will, also, I will also help you. I will ensure that your holy convent is granted synodal recognition, and I will also send some pious girls to add to the convent. He knew some other girls, the Metropolitan knew some other girls and said, I will also send them there to your monastery. The saint thanked the Metropolitan and invited him to go together to visit the site on the future of the future convent, and the Metropolitan happily agreed. He said, yes, I will come with you to visit the site of this place. The Holy One returned to his office and immediately wrote to the young women at Eyna exactly what happened with the Metropolitan of Athens. He concluded his letter by writing, quote, so from all of this, I can say that God has approved and that your prayers have been answered. Such, just as he was finishing his letter, he just signed it, there was a knock on the door. Five men from Eyna entered the office. They said to the saint that they now have another problem. Do you know what the other problem is? These are the men that asked him to pray for the rain. And now, they, now, he's say, now they've come and say, oh, you know, your eminence... We have another problem now. Can anyone guess what the problem is? Let's have a look. Uh, We have another problem, that there was too much rain and even flooding. (laughs) Furthermore, they asked him to pray that it stop raining. The saint consoled them and told them, don't be afraid, 
prayers are not necessary, it will end and you will prosper and rejoice. Yeah, I think I remember reading a book, he said that, you know, the God knows what he's doing. Your island had no rain for three years. It needs a lot of water and, and things like that. But the, um, the Holy Metropolitan continued in prayer for the women on, the, on Aegina and sent them whatever money he could. However, this was limited because he continued to give alms to those in need and to many charities. He would never turn anyone away, anyone away, but kept saying that God will provide, and he did. And excellent examples as far. So this is very interesting. He would collect money, and then he would say, okay, I've collected some money, I'm going to send this now to the, to the um, young women at Eyina for the, on, on Eyina there for the... Um, for the convent. And just as he was about to send it, all of a sudden, knock, knock on his door, was a poor person, please help me, please help me, and he would give the money to, that, to, to, to them. One day, an old, sickly-looking man came to his office asking for 25 drachmas. The man owed this amount to someone, and if he did not pay him, he would be put in prison. The Holy Nectarius asked his trustworthy assistant Costa Sacopolis, which um, I mean, I don't mention him much in this talk, but he, he, those of oh, where's the book? Anyway, um, uh, the, the book that I got at the back, which is a lot of detail of saying those, it speaks a lot about him. He was a very close, he was a very close friend to the saint and helped the saint, and the saint would open up to him a lot. Anyway, so he was his assistant there, and he uh, he said to he he said to Costa there to give the man the money. Now, Costa was shocked and said that there was no money left. Then the saint insisted that he look again. Costa then quietly said to the saint, whispered, and said that all they've got left is 25 drachmas. That's all they've got, and they're not going to get any more money, because of his pay probably, until the, until the, um, the next month. And that's all they had left. The saint told Costa to give it to the man and that God would provide. And then it says, Costa angry looked at the visitor and he even said to the man, where did you come from at this time? Like, where did you come from? Like, all of a sudden you've come at this bad time that we haven't got much money and you want the only bit of money that we've got left. And he was angry. The saint settled Costa down and calmly said, don't worry, every time we help those in need, we are rewarded more than what we give. At, that, at this time, a Christian brother is in need and therefore we must help him. So the saint could not send him away. He, the, the person was there, he needed help, and, and, and his way was, you help the person. Costa left and then came back with the money, still complaining under his breath, right? And going on, you know, like, you know, that's all we've got and things like that. The next day, however... Uh, Costa was surprised when he found out that the Holy Nectarius had been invited to perform the wedding ceremony for a rich couple. The Holy Met Metropolitan was going to receive 120 drachmas, 100 for him and 20 for the students who would chant during the service. The chanters ended up giving their 20 drachmas to the Holy One. Costa could now see that the Holy Nectarius was correct that God rewards the giver with more than 
he than what he gave. Now this is an is a wonderful example and links into the talk that we did, talk number forty-eight. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. You know we really lack that trust in God, and we say, oh, I've got to keep the money, and I've got to keep this, and I've got to keep that, and things like that. And meanwhile, there's all these opportunities to help, and we don't. And then we wonder why things just don't go right with us. And uh, this, that example is, um, is excellent, and we'll see more of it. Meanwhile, the saint continued to write and publish many books. We, we, we heard that in the other talk. And, many, and any money that he received from the sale of these books, he used as follows. Number one, to pay for the printer's expenses. Number two, for the giving of alms to the poor, which was very important to him. And three, he sent by mail to help the women in Ayana as well. So that's how he, so he, as I said, he produced a lot of books, which we're going to go through that in the next talk. But he produced a lot of books and the money that he would get, that's, how he would, that's what he would do, pay the printer give to the poor and give to the women at, in, in Agina. In addition to this, the saint wrote countless letters pleading for assistance that the church and the convent in Agina might be established. The, their first donation that they received was from a woman from Agina who wished to build two rooms where the Holy One could live when he would visit the women. So he would often go over to Agina to visit the women, see how they're going, to try and help them. And the first money, because the other one promised to give money for the church, but the church hadn't started yet. But this one was the first money that they actually got, especially for that reason. And they said, this money to help build some rooms so that when the saint would go over there, he would have somewhere to live. Because what he would do is, when he would go there, he had to live in the town, in some friend of his house, which wasn't convenient. So this woman said to build these other rooms for him. One of the women at Eyuna decided to lead a stricter ascetical life. She took upon herself to fast excessively to the point that she lost a lot of weight and became sick. When the Holy Nectarius found out about this, he became very concerned for her physical and spiritual health. He's, in other words, he didn't have that attitude which is, that's it, fast, that's good, fast, that's it. You don't, you, you don't have to worry about physical, don't have to worry about spiritual, nothing, as long as you fast. And then we've got people that say, then God will take care and doesn't matter, even though some people can't do it. And here we see that he was concerned. He spent all night praying on his knees, not only for her, but for all the sisters. That's a very good example there. When someone comes to me and says, I have a problem with whatever, husband, wife, children, whatever, this mother-in-law, father-in-law, the first question I ask is, what prayers have you done? Nothing. They say, but I want you to pray. They say, can you please pray? You serve, you know, you do a service. Can you do a maleben? Can you do prayers? I said, no, I'm not going to do any prayers until you pray first. When you pray, then come to me and or to another priest. I'm talking about an example of mine. 
This is for all priests, doesn't matter. This is, what I, this, this is how it should be. You pray first, then go to the priest, because that has a difference. Priests have told me when a person comes and asks for prayers for their loved one or for someone for situation, and they've already prayed, then the priest's prayer is actually energised. It actually comes more to life. But when the person comes and has done nothing, the priest a lot of time just feels like a bit like a that the prayer is not flowing, that they just can't commemorate. So it's very important for people to make their own attempts first and then go and get the help as well. He wrote her a letter regarding the danger of excessive fasting. He pointed out to her that fasting and good health go together. What does that mean? That fasting and good health go together. In other words, when you fast, you're supposed to still be healthy. Not when you fast, you're dying or you're sick. Or some people say to me, um, um, uh, I can't, I don't know why, but I'm just sleeping continually and I'm fasting. And what are the children doing? I don't know, I'm sleeping. So who's taking care of the children? I don't know, I'm sleeping. So what's the... So fasting goes together with health. So, so some people are fasting and they've got so, many, so much nerves, it affects them, their nervous system. Uh, obviously there's something wrong with them and then they start to react and they fight with their husbands or fight with their wives or hit the children, etc., etc. The whole thing is a mess. It's because the people don't understand. Fasting, it does not mean that one becomes sick. Fasting, the purpose of fasting is to help us conquer the passions, to help us fight the passions and help us a little bit. It kind of softens us a bit. It kind of takes the edge off our passions a lot of times. But when it has the opposite effect and makes us sick or makes us spiritually worse, then you've got to look at what's, what's um, wrong. Like so Some people do very... Um, very um, difficult jobs. Say, for example, someone's a doctor and they have to do operations and they're Orthodox Christians. So they're coming to do an operation on you and they're fasting. And suddenly you find they took out the wrong kidney. Why? Oh, I'm sorry, I was fasting, I was dizzy. And that's, and that's, and that's what happens because people are, uh, don't understand that the fasting is not meant to make you sick. Um, listen to what he says. He pointed out to her that fasting and good health go together and were she to become very sick, she would have to leave the quietness of the convent and seek medical attention in the world. In other words, she would have to go to Athens, to hospital. He actu- his actual words were, quote, food should not come between us and God. I want you to eat whatever is necessary for the sake of your health. In this way, you'll be able to continue to live in the convent, in prayer, rather than having to leave and go to the world, end quote. So in other words, he's saying, if your fasting is making you sick, and then you've got to go to hospital or got to go out back into the world, what's the point then? You're going to leave, leave your convent to go and do something like that? That's just a, that, that defeats the purpose. So some people can fast more, some less, 
but, the, but for everyone, it's not meant to make you sick and make you have problems. Some people actually become crazy. We've said that before. I think what it's got to do with, it's got to do with some people's, um, uh, when they eat, when they fast, if they're not eating certain proteins, their sugar levels go haywire. In other words, they, when you eat, uh, uh, the, your sugar levels kind of stay a bit more balanced. But when you're not eating, some people, they cannot fast. And what happens is that when they stop eating certain proteins, their sugars drop. And then they have to have sugar to go back up again. And then it drops again, up again. And, and that basically they head towards diabetes. And then you've got the other ones who've got low iron. And even if they have iron supplements, sometimes that helps. Uh, but sometimes it doesn't help. And that, that causes a host of problems as well. Now, some people can go to a doctor and get everything checked out. And the doctor says, all your blood work, or whatever you call it, your results are good. Your iron's good, your sugar's good, this is this and this and that. But yet, these people swear black and blue one can say, they say, I don't know, but when I fast, I get sick. But they, the, the doctors don't have an answer. And some people say, oh, they're, they're making that up. A lot of times they might not be making that up. A lot of times it's that the doctors just have not analysed the whole thing um, closely there could be underlying problems because a person's body is very complex i remember a very good spiritual father in jerusalem who when i went there and and i spoke to him and he said to me that um he said to me you the person should be their doctor their own doctor you know he says what bothers you so you can eat something and all of a sudden, you get sick. You go to the doctor, the doctor goes, I don't know, I don't know why you're sick. They don't understand why, if you eat a certain thing, it makes you sick. But, it, but you know it makes you sick. So even if the doctor says, I don't have any medical reason for it, you don't keep on going on eating it, and then you get sick. So, let's leave that part. But, uh, that one I found very good because it actually confirmed what I was saying for many years at these talks, to be very careful. And we have the saint who actually says, be very careful, and he said it beautifully. Fasting goes together with health of body, not to have. You're supposed to be fasting and still be healthy, or you must be healthy a lot of times to fast properly. If you're not healthy in the first place, then it's hard to fast properly, or if you fast properly and you get sick, then that shouldn't be. It should be together and adjusted accordingly. You know, help get the doctors to help if they can, even though they're very limited. So we go on. When the Holy Notarius was visiting a church in Athens one day, he bumped into, or ran into, I'm going to say, Metropolitan Theoclitus of Athens. The Metropolitan said to him once again that he, that he has his blessing to establish the new convent. Also, the saint of God received permission to tonsure the women, to make them into nuns. So the, the Metropolitan of Athens said, yes, you have my blessing, establish the monastery, make the women into nuns, you have my blessing. That's very important because we're going to see later on what happens. Soon after the Holy Nectarius went to Aegina and tonsured the women, the blind Chrysanthi became Xenia, 
Katerina became Cassiani, Angeliki became Akakia, Eleni became Elizabeth, and Maria became Singletiki. He guided the sisters as much as he was able by writing letters, addressing spiritual matters, and visiting when time and health permitted. So even though he made them nuns, he was still the dean of the school and he still had to be in Athens and he could only sometimes go over. Everything else had to happen through letters because at that time, I don't think they even had the phones. Obviously, they, wouldn't have, they didn't have phones connected probably to the island or to that area. So that's the only way they could communicate was letters or he would come over every so often. Because the Holy Nectarius could not be could not be absent from his duties as director of the Rosari School, he left the women at the convent under the care of Archimandrite Theodosius, who would send a priest to serve in the convent chapel on Sundays and other holy days. This arrangement continued for a few years. So he gave this, this man, this Archimandrite there, and said, look, you, I think he had a monastery. He says, can you please take care of the nuns and go and do the services for them? When, of course, when, when, when St. Nectarius was there, he would do the service, the services. But when he wasn't there, then he would come over, he would send the priests over. The women had now been in Egina just under two years. On July the 1st, 1906, the Holy Nectarius went to Egina to perform the groundbreaking ceremony for the new church. The new church was to be built on the same spot as the old church. The saint was constantly concerned about the sisters' um, spiritual and physical needs. Not just spiritual, but physical needs. Such was his fatherly love for them. For example, he would worry when they, would be, when they became sick or exhausted. He would often send the medicines. He also worried when they did not have enough food or when they had problems getting on with each other, when they were fighting and things, or when they were not struggling in the right way. The, this continual concern and worry would often cause him to suffer to the point that he would get sick. So this saint of God would actually become sick from his worry because of that. And that's, and that's a good example for parents, for parents who are bringing up their children, especially in this world, that, yes, they would get sick from worry and from their concern. And what did the saint do? He would pray for them. And that's what parents need to do. They need to learn how to pray, to ask God to help them to bring up their children, in, especially today where it's very, very difficult. And that's why I say to people, they say, I want to get married. Do you know how to pray? No. Well, how are you going to pray in the marriage when you have problems when it's, it's that's when especially when you need it as a single person you've got problems in the world but as a married person the problems are a million times worse and if someone's not mentally or spiritually strong and someone doesn't know how to pray then that person is going to become a shipwreck and his family as well i actually talk a lot of people out of getting married what a bad priest. How can you do that? People should get married. A lot of priests say, get married. You know, that some couples come along. Oh, we want to get married. Yeah, that's blessed, blessed. Get married. Get married. No, don't, don't even ask the question, um, are you leading a spiritual life? They think, oh, when you get married, that will all work itself out. 
Yeah, it works itself out in the court when you do the division of the property or whatever's there, but most of it is owned by the bank because people today want to have um, mansions as soon as they get married, while our parents had lived in little houses, while today people want everything, so that adds pressure as well to the marriage. And why would they want everything? If they were spiritual in the first place, they would know, wait a minute, things grow slowly. We don't get married and have straight away two cars, a swimming pool, a mansion, holidays, and a speedboat on top of that. <laughs> right? So you say, well, what's going on there? So those people obviously are going down, you know, are going to go down with their speedboat, I think. So let's go on this continued concern. Let's look at his letters, some of the letters that he wrote. Only after a long time he wrote to one nun. Only after a long time will you reach perfection. That's exactly the same as the Obden elders and all the elders and the true saints of God. Only after a long time will you reach perfection. What did we talk about in all the old talks that I've done? That people come into the spiritual life and straight away they, are, they become holy. But he's saying, no, that takes a long time for it to happen, for one to become progressed. I ask you, another, another quote, I ask you that you do not allow thoughts of hate to overtake you the evil one is injecting you with hatred against your beloved Ksenia. So one nun was complaining to the saint and saying that um, she can't stand the, um, the, the Ksenia because I think the saint put her in charge. And she was getting all these thoughts. The same thing happens in marriages. That, that's, what, that's, that's the first thing that happens, where people start to have thoughts. The husband has thoughts against the wife. The wife has thoughts against the husband. The good thing here is that these nuns were opening up to their spiritual father and saying, I've got thoughts. And that gives the opportunity for the spiritual father to pray for the couple, but not only to just to pray, but also to advise them to understand the thoughts that you're having against your spouse is demonic. It's trying to separate you, etc., etc. And people don't, have un don't understand that. If they, before they got married, were leading a spiritual life, they would have seen that in action when they start getting paranoid thoughts or they start having hateful people and they start to deal with that as single people, as single people they deal with that, gain some experience. They go, oh, yeah, this is, this is, really, this is um, really bad that I'm actually having these thoughts against that person and that person. And then the spiritual father goes, look, that's demonic and let's be careful of that, that's judging and this. And the person starts to understand so that when they go into the marriage, they've got experience and go, oh, there they are, there's the thoughts again. That's why I hate my wife and that's why I can't stand my husband and that's why this and that's why that. But that doesn't occur. People don't struggle before when they're single, come to the marriage and they're just because there you're, you, know, you can't escape. See, as a single person, even though people live at home, it's, a, it's an irresponsible life. Going out, um, freedom in your room, listen to the stereo, watch TV in the room. There's nothing really there of even rubbing up with your family much. But in the marriage, it's a different thing. It, the person is there. And, that, and there's all this friction and problems and paranoia and, and all these type of things. When you've got experience, then you'll be able to get it. That's the main reason for divorce, because people believe their thoughts 
She doesn't love me. He hates me. He does this. He's a bludger. She's this. She's off. She's that. All these stupid things going on. And at the end, they have divorced because they have no experience of what's called spiritual warfare. And how do the demons fight us? They don't appear to us like they did to the saints. They don't appear as they are and, 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 and have physical and, and things that they used to do. To the no, with people in the world, the devil fights us through thoughts and through passions and through um, trying to make us fall into sins. Um, the next quote, to find the Lord, you must humble yourselves to the ground before him. Because the Lord detests the proud and arrogant. He loves and visits those who have humble hearts. Exactly the teaching of all the Holy Fathers. That God loves the humble and detests the proud. When we're proud, God cannot dwell in us, and that happens to all of us. When we're proud, when we argue, when we want to be right, all the time and things like that, that's when God has left us because he cannot dwell in a person that's got pride. But when we are humbled, then God can come into us. Number four, when you make the heart of your neighbour happy, joyful, and more so that of your sisters, nuns, then you can be sure that this will please God much more than when you offer prayers and long fasts. Again, goes back to the previous talks. What is the saint saying? He's saying to the nun, what's more important than long prayers and fasting is when you show love and when you are concerned for the other person, especially those of your own sisters in your monastery. Now let's go to the married people. Let's go to people in the world. What does God want? God wants for people who are leading Christian lives not just to think that everything's to do with long prayers and fasting and reading books and things like that. No, that, that's important. But the most important is that God wants is when we have love for our neighbour especially those that are close to us. I'll give you an example. There was a fellow that I knew. He had around eight children. And he would... He was, he was an Orthodox uh, Christian. And he would uh, often not go home. His wife would be there saying, come home, come home, I need your help. No, he would actually go and... He would say to me, I'm, I'm going tonight to such and such a place because their child, their teenage boy is on drugs or something, I'm going to go and help the boy. Or that the girl's gone off, I'm going to go and help the girl. And this and that. I go, but how about your children? He goes, oh, because I'm helping other people's children, God will take care of my children. And when I heard that, I was quite shocked. Anyway... He didn't get his, his thing because all his children married non-Orthodox. And as, and as his wife said, she said a really good expression. She goes, which means our children became Turks. That was an expression that the Greeks used to use when, children, when their children lost their Orthodoxy. So that's an expression. I know maybe Serbs, Russians have the same. They go, oh, they became Turks. So in other words, um, that the, their children lost their Orthodoxy. So he was going around to save other people, to keep them in orthodox and help them, but not his own children. And he actually thought that he was doing a, big, a great job. And he did do a lot of fasts too, by the way. 
and, and things like that. Communed, confessed, gave out tapes, helped people, this, 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 but nothing for his own family. Well, St Nectarius says here that God's not pleased with that because what he's pleased with most of all is when we are concerned and we, and we help those who are close to us first. What's the point in helping others if you don't help those that are in your own family? Number five, I hope that all of you will overcome the battle with pride, a fight which will be constant. Wonderful. Pride is like a many-headed dragon whose head has been cut off and yet another one springs up with a different form and character. I think he's going through Greek mythology. There's some many-headed dragon. or I don't know what it is. I don't really know much about that stuff. But I think they say well, every time they cut their head, then another head will grow, something like that. I'm not into, those, into the mythology. But uh, here, St Nectarius is using that example. He's saying that where you think you've knocked the pride down and go, OK, I had a proud thought. I knocked it down. That's it. It's gone now. And then and all of a sudden it comes out in another way. So we have, a, we have pride I'm going to give that money to the poor. And then we, when we have the thought, oh, you're good. Yeah, no, no, I mustn't, I mustn't have those thoughts. Push that to the side. And then suddenly another one comes out. You're good because you noticed that you were proud. You see? And it comes like it becomes pride from here, pride from there. And the saint is saying that this battle with pride is constant. Whatever gifts we receive, we receive freely by grace. Do not stretch the rope excessively so that it does not snap before its time. That's, an advi- that's another thing that he wrote to one of the nuns. What does that mean? It's the example of St Anthony. One day people came to see St Anthony and they saw him in the desert there with his monks. And he noticed that the monks were, uh, he was there and the monks were kind of a little bit of, little bit not laughing but kind of, there was a little bit of like um, light laughter, one can say. And the, and the freaks that came there said, oh, they were scandalised. They go, oh, how, is the, how, how are you, you're monks and you're laughing and you're, you know, and smiling and things like that and this is not right. And then St Anthony the Great said to them, um, get, get this bow. And he says, okay, get the bow, you know, bow and arrow, get the bow and stretch it. So they stretched it and stretched it. He goes, stretch it more. And they more. And then St. Anthony says, stretch it more. And he stretched more and he goes, more. And he goes, no, if I stretch it more, it will break. He goes, that's the same as people. If you stretch them too much, if you push them too much, sometimes they'll snap. Whether it's to do with fasting, whether it's to do with prayer, whether it's to do with a lot of things, you've got to know the right amount for each person. So a discerning spiritual father, which not many... Um, around but anyway a discerning spiritual father will look at each person and determine how much that person can take and to be concerned like saint nectarius was to be concerned if i push that person too much they might break you've got to be very careful see how the church does not just think they've got yeah that's it everyone do what they want Pray as much as you want, fast as much as you want, do this, do that, do everything. Now we'll have the break now for the sandwiches for around 10 minutes. So have a break. Okay, we'll continue on with the talk.
there were some who still believed that the Holy Nectarus would be invited back to Egypt, either as Metropolitan uh, of Pentapolis or as Patriarch. So if you remember from the previous talk, the, uh, the um, saint was expelled, as we know, and then later on when the Patriarch died, then he was called back and they did elections there and then he wasn't chosen. Some people still held the dream that one day he would be called back. However, the saint did not allow such thoughts to disturb him. He peacefully continued to serve the church in Greece and the women on Aegina. So even though people believed it, he didn't let that bother him. He just said, that's it, just um, that's happened. And he felt that that wasn't God's will for him to go back. So now we're in March 1907. The Diocese of Evia needed a new bishop. That was the island that he went, we discussed in the last talk, that was the island that he went and he was a preacher for two and a half years. And at that time when he was there, the bishop died or, or, the, or, the, or the, um, the position was vacant and the people there wanted him to become, but he wasn't chosen. Anyway, once again, uh, they needed a new bishop. Even though it had been 14 years since the Holy Nectarius had left Evia, the people wanted him to return and become their bishop. They wrote letters to the synod, collected signatures and wrote articles in the local newspaper. They also wrote letters to the saint. This caused confusion in his soul because, on the one hand, he had the responsibility of the nuns in Egyptian, and on the other hand, the possibility of being bishop of Evia. So again, he came to this uh, crossroads. He was... He was being considered as Bishop of Evia, but then if he becomes Bishop of Evia, what would happen then to the, to the nuns that are on Eyina? As, as he always did, he resorted to prayer. He put his trust in God. He knows the best solution. After waiting a few months, the decision was made. The Holy Synod did not want the Holy Nectarius to be given the, this position, from this, he felt that it was God's will to take care of the nuns. So once again, he was not chosen, and he took that as being an indication that God wants him to continue taking care of the nuns there on Egina. Uh, at the beginning of 1908, the saint was now 61 years old, and he had been the dean of the Rosarius Ecclesiastical School approximately 14 years. His health was deteriorating to the point that he had become physically and mentally tired from the many persecutions and from all the, his pastoral work. He was suffering from headaches, frequent colds, dizziness and weakness. He was frequently forced to stay in bed. Because of this, he was finding it hard. He was finding it more and more difficult to carry out his duties. So let's have a look at his duties. He was the director of the school. He was a lecturer at the school. He was a preacher, where he would preach in the school in Athens and Piraeus. He was a confessor and spiritual guide for the students. He, he, and he also confessed lay people. He also confessed the student, uh, um, clergy. He continually gave alms for the poor and collected donations for a number of charities. He performed other works of mercy for example, what does that mean? Not only did he give alms to the poor, but he also 
visited the sick, he visited those in prison, helped those who were, had problems. And he also corresponded with those seeking his help. So he had all these responsibilities. But apart from all this, he had the overwhelming responsibilities of the convent. As mentioned earlier, he would often become sick from worrying about the nuns. He understood that the nuns were very young and inexperienced. He was, he was concerned that they would not be able to discern the warfare of the demons. So that was a very exceptional thing for women to get together with no spiritual mother or spiritual father there to help them. In the spiritual life, we always need guidance. St. Paul, as we read in the epistles, that he, was, that he guided so many people. That's why he wrote those epistles, giving them advice you know, and things like that. The Holy One began to regret that he had left the sisters on their own without the proper monastic guidance. He actually said, quote, I was ignorant of the responsibility that I'd taken on. He could now see that it was necessary for him to be present at Eyna in order to guide them in the monastic life rather than retire to another monastery, as he thought four years earlier. As we remember, four years earlier, he had thought of retiring. Now, and he always was looking for another monastery to go to. He never had the thought that he would end up at Eyna. He just thought that was for the nuns. Now he started to change his mind and started thinking that it perhaps the best thing would be for him to be there with the nuns on Eyna to guide them in the spiritual life. He, you know, he said he was ignorant. He says, I was ignorant of the responsibility that I had taken on. So, in February 1908, St. Nectarius wrote a letter of resignation to the trustees of the Rosarius Ecclesiastical School. He informed them that because of his frequent illnesses, he was unable to continue his duties as dean. When the students found out about this, his resignation, by the way, the school still exists, they were very, very upset. Some of them even cried. The teachers were also upset with the news. Even before the news of his resignation, all of the teachers had started to respect him. You know, before we said in the other talks that they didn't like him, some didn't like him, some were against him, some were saying he's fanatical, some were saying that he, he's um, too strict and other things that they were saying there. The teachers, clergy, as well as uh, the trustees, some of the trustees, etc. Now things started to change a bit. The trustees, many of whom had been against him for 14 years, now regretted that he wanted to leave. Nevertheless, seeing that he had indeed become sick, the trustees accepted his resignation and acknowledged his great service to the school. The Ministry of Ecclesiastical Affairs, who gave him the job of preacher, if you remember, it's like a it's a government body connected to the church and they were the ones who gave him the job also as the dean of Rosaria school they uh, accepted his resignation and highly praised him for his service at the school granting him royal recognition some type of acknowledgement from the queen 
for his work there for 14 years. Furthermore, the trustees offered him a lifelong pension of 300 drachmas per month, which is exceptional because, as I said before, they didn't get those things, but they were so indebted to him because he had put the school on the map, one can say. Because of him, the school had become popular. Before he came, the school was a mess. And after St Nectarius came to the school, the school became famous and uh, was producing very good students who later on became priests and theologians. They asked him to at least continue as dean until they found a replacement and he agreed. Meanwhile, Metropolitan Theokritos of Athens informed the Holy One that he wanted him to preach in Athens and Piraeus against many heresies that existed there. So the Metropolitan of Athens actually had a problem in his diocese. And the problem was that all these heretics were starting to come into Greece and were anti-Orthodox, anti-Mother um, of God, anti-the cross, anti-priest, anti-this, anti-that. We call them uh, heretics. And he wanted the saint to go and preach to the Orthodox people to be careful and to teach them the correct thing. News began to spread about the Holy Nectarius' resignation. Many were upset that they would not hear his sermons anymore or receive his guidance. Every day many came to visit him, to farewell him and to receive his blessing. They offered him donations for the new convent. Within a few months, a new director was found and the Holy Nectarius was now free to leave the school. Remember that it had been four years since the women had moved there. So they were four years on their own and now he was resigning, leaving his position as dean after 14 years and going to Aegina. He left Athens and arrived in Aegina where he was enthusiastically greeted by the nuns and many of the citizens of Aegina. Remember he died in 1920. So that is 92 years ago. I went to St Nectarius' monastery in 1980 so that would have only been 60 years ago and there's actually people there that were on the island that actually knew him. I remember I, I met a man there and I uh, said to him, did you know the saint? He goes, yes, I remember that when a person would be going home from the fields on the donkey, you know, and the saint was at, at the monastery. So as they were going along the track there nearby the monastery, the saint would actually, from a, and the person would be sleeping because, the, you know, as you know, donkeys, they know the way home. So the person would be kind of sleeping on the um, donkey as he was um, uh, going home, because tired from working in the field. And he said, and the saint would from far away, he would um, bless him uh, as he was um, going past to be protected. He would, he would often do that, pray for everyone, bless so people, so these, this story is not just a, this life of saint of a thousand years ago, 500 years ago. These are actually, you know, not that long ago. Shortly after the saint's arrival on Aegina, the church was finally finished with the many donations that were given. It took two years from the time that the foundation was laid. Remember how we said two years ago that he came and he laid the stone? 
He wanted the church to be dedicated to the Holy Trinity. On the 2nd of June 1908, in the presence of many of the people of Ayana, including clergy and monks and nuns, he performed the dedication service. At the entrance of the chapel, I think to this day, there is a marble plaque which reads, To the Holy Trinity, this holy chapel has been erected from its foundation for your eternal praise. Nectarius, former Metropolitan of Pentapolis, foundation laid 1st of July 1906, dedicated on the 2nd of June 1908. Dedicated, I think, is when the church gets, gets consecrated. It's a special blessing. They put... Uh, anyway, it's a, whole, it's a whole ritual there. The saint of God continues his effort, his effort in collecting donations for the building works and other de- needs of the convent. So now, as we said, he's there and he, was, and he was responsible for paying the expenses of the convent. With great zeal and sacrifice, the Holy Nectarius was also involved in the reconstruction and maintenance of the convent. He would labour with his own hands all day. Some of the work was very hard and difficult. He would wear old, an old cassock, like an old asun, and a straw hat to protect him from the hot summer sun. And the following is a list of some of the work that he did. So one of them was he took care of Alf and watered the gardens and fields with water that he often had to carry from far distance because he didn't have water there on the, on the um, property. He prepared the ground and cleared the fields of large rocks, carrying them on his own shoulders. Remember, he was old and sick. Now, remember what they said to him? You know, he said... If, if it's meant to be, then God will give me strength. And obviously, you know, for a person that was so old and sickly, he's now doing quite heavy work. So that's why I'm saying it doesn't matter when people have this belief that they can't do their duties as husband, wife, or whatever, that, whatever their duty is, as mother, father, that with God, all things are possible, as it says in the Bible. Just we have to ask. He then used the rocks for building the cells and guest houses, guest house. He also did road work, removing rocks to widen the road so that an outside guest room house could be constructed. He would clean the buildings. He also repaired or made shoes for the nuns. He had learnt that somewhere. I forgot where he learnt. I think he was not sure. He learnt how to make shoes. So he actually used to make the shoes for the nuns. On many occasions, when guests would visit the convent, the old Nectarius was seen out in the field wearing his old, torn, worn work, rason, ripped, dirty, etc., and his straw hat. And the pilgrims that came there had no idea that the labourer in the field was the Holy Metropolitan of Pentapolis. Later, however, one can, call, one can, Im- can well imagine their surprise when they asked to meet and speak with the holy man and came face to face with the same man they'd seen working in the field earlier. A lot of people had, had known, knew him, but a lot of people didn't, had never seen him before. They just heard about him. And they were coming over from Athens or from Piraeus there to see him. The same thing happened with other saints of the church where um, people would hear about them. They would go there and they'd say, we've come to speak to the elder. They'd see a monk there with all ripped clothes and dirty. And um, 
They didn't know that he was the one. The Holy Nectarius himself celebrated the divine liturgy at the convent. He was extremely attentive to the correct observance of the divine services and the order and solemnity of the chanting, both of which are proper to the monastic life. He wanted everything to be done properly in an orthodox manner. He wanted the services to have, because in the church we have order. St. Paul says that too, I think. We have order, not chaos. Um, And I think he even got someone to come there to, to help the nuns how to chant and teach them the church services properly and things like that. Saint Sava the New of Kalimnos, I think, if I remember right. He forbade anything that was not in harmony with the monastic life. He encouraged the nuns to avoid worldly associations and conversations which are hurtful and corrupting for nuns. Now, very strict monasteries, good monasteries, they don't allow their nuns and monks, etc., to just speak to anyone that comes in, pilgrims and things like that, because the pilgrims can start speaking about stupidities and things like that. So they, were, they, have, they have specific people who would take care of them, people that were a bit stronger, and they would deal with the guests, show them the rooms and answer questions that were more mature, spiritually stronger. But in general... Um, the stricter monasteries don't allow contact with the people. When people go, they get offended. They go, oh, they don't even talk, they don't do this, they don't do that. But they don't understand that that is the proper um, order that's been for thousands of years. And here we have a great saint which actually kept to that. He and didn't, still kept st- when we went. Yes, when I, that's right. When I went, I was surprised because a lot of monasteries, they let you eat in their, in their, in their trapeze, in their dining room. Um, there, when I went there... Um, as a lay person before I became a priest, when I went there, they I wasn't invited to the troubles. I go, what's happening? What's what's this is a bit different, and they said no. Um, lay people don't eat with the nuns. They um, separately. They got their own room. They got their own dining room, and people do that. Other monasteries they allow it. Like you know, Manathos, a lot of monasteries there um, on um, in summer when there's thousands of pilgrims come from all over the world. Uh, their dining rooms could have two, three hundred people, lay people, separate to the monks, all there. They don't close the door to anyone. Um, the anyway, here this monastery it was he actually kept it this way, especially with nuns. Therefore, whenever guests would arrive, oh, by the way, Manathos does, doesn't allow women anyway, so Manathos only men are allowed to visit. Therefore, whenever guests would arrive at the convent, they would be escorted to see the acting abbess, the blind mother Xenia, or other nuns who were old. He strictly forbade the entry of men into certain parts of the convent. As I just said, he laboured to establish a fully communal convent, meaning the convent was made in a way that was everything was common they lived everything was common it wasn't like i eat when i want that's my property it was all common they ate together everything was in, was uh, communal girls and women from every background came to join the convent at this time as time went on the convent grew 
we'll see at the end how many they had. I think it got up to a few. The Holy One preached the word of God in the convent's church during the divine liturgies. So when there was people present, he would preach. Not only for the nuns, but also for the lay people who were present, for the visitors. He also confessed and counselled the nuns individually. In addition to this, he would speak to them as a group after every Vespers. So every ve- after every Vespers, which is the afternoon service, he would gather them together and speak to them as a group about spiritual life and things, uh, and things like that. He still continued to confess and guide lay people who came seeking his help. The saint of God knew, but I think it would have been less because, as I said, uh, in Athens was a lot of people, but here they had to catch ferry boats over and, 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 and it was a little bit, it was much more limited. The saint of God knew when to be strict or lenient. The saint, uh, according to each person's situation and circumstances. For some people, he would be strict. For other people, he'd be softer. It depends. It's the same with children. Some children, you can correct them with a word. Some children, you've got to be a bit more strict. Other children, you might have to give a little rap on the bottom, depending on what they've done. So it depends on um, children. As a teacher in my younger days, I remember some children, you just have to say to them, I don't want you to ever do that again. That was it. They wouldn't do it ever again. Nothing. Other kids, you've got to keep them in on detention. Other kids, you have to get their parents up. It depends. It, uh, uh, it depends on each person's makeup, how they are. So there's the same in the spiritual life. Some people, if you give them a, a big penance, you could actually make them fall away from the church. A big penance might be, okay, your sin's very serious. You should actually do that much fasting, do so many prostrations and that. You actually could lose them. So that's why... There has to be discernment. You can't be the same. The same with children. You can't punish each child in the same way. Each child is different. Um, yeah, as I said, some all you, all you do is just show them a little bit of um, a little bit, a little bit of a talk. That's all right. Some you can't. You need to do more. But in everything, there must be prayer. So with the saint, he prayed continually, asking God to give him discernment to know what medicine is necessary for each person that came to him. That's the same as people that have got children, whatever. Must pray continually, asking God, what is the right way to handle each child? And for God to give that enlightenment to help and not to have it on ourselves and say, I know what's the best, I know how to do it, I'm the best parent, I'm this, I'm that. So... And that's why there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of problems. He had become the leading confessor and spiritual father of Greece. Despite the numerous cares of the convent, he spent many nights and other spare hours writing articles and books. He continued, like as I said, he did this from the beginning. Locke always wrote books. And now, as when he was in Athens teaching, he also wrote books for them. He wrote textbooks for the students, as well as theological works, great theological works, which were acknowledged by the Oxford, was it Oxford University or something like that? Then uh, some works that he did. And here, he continues to do this. He wrote a large number of works on theology, ethics, church history, in order to encourage the Church of Greece to follow 
the tradition of the Holy Fathers, which was then often either unknown or distorted by Western influence. See, as I mentioned in the last talk, Greece had started to become, it went off. Once they were free of the Turks, there was a lot of Western influence. Protestants were coming in with their, and to enlighten them, as if that, that to say, we have to bring the Greeks to Christ. It's like the Greeks didn't, didn't, didn't believe in Christ. So they, there was all these influences coming and they were affecting the church. And he would often write books to undo a lot of these wrong views that had taken root in Greece. So he was a true Kolivada, as we said, the, like, like the fathers, like the Kolivadas, the, the Kolivadas, which were the ones that I explained in the last, I think it was the talk before, those who kept the proper tradition of the Orthodox Church. As usual, he gave away all the money he received from his publications to the poor and the convent. As we mentioned before, the convent drew many visitors. One day, now this is interesting, a theologian came to visit him who was a former student of the Rosario School. So he was, a, he was Saint Nectarius's student. Um, he came and visited in the winter of 1909. It had now been one year since the saint moved there and he was now 63 years old. The well-dressed ex-student was disgusted to find his former dean so pale and thin, dressed in ragged clothing, dirty and engaged in manual labour because at that time he was working in the mud drilling a well for water. Remember I said he had to go and get the water from far away so they were trying to make a well to be there near the monastery so they don't have to keep on carrying the water. So this student, ex-student, was now theologian and um, he was disgusted with his, with his ex-dean. The visitor found the Holy One's work unbecoming or shameful. Not hiding this feeling from him, the student began interrogating the Holy One, saying, a man of your position and education and one who could surely become the glory of our church, is saying, how can you be doing this? Like you used to be the dean of the school, you are highly educated, and you could have become the, you know, something great in the church. The holy man quickly interrupted him and said, glory is on high in the church in heaven. The visitor, wishing to justify his words and thoughts, remarked, yes, but you are an excellent person and yet you have exiled yourself to this wilderness, wasting your time and making yourself unknown. Didn't see the prouder we are, the more we want to be known. And the saint says, I'm not interested in being known. See, so this, this guy, because he was proud, vainglorious, he keeps on going back. You could have been a great person, the glory of the church, and you've come here wasting your time. No one knows you. I've heard that you are busy digging gardens and sewing slippers for the nuns, sarcastically. Like, how can you be doing that? The saint answered, I'm not interested in the opinion of the world or the passing fame of this life. 
I'm concerned with what God wills and how he works in my soul. The visitor asked, was it God who ordered you to exile yourself to this convent of illiterate nuns? See, this person just doesn't stop. See, the saints answering humbly and this person just keeps on arguing. Was it God? Like a like, like satanic type of reasoning. Was it God who ordered you to exile yourself to this convent of illiterate nuns? The Holy One could see that this poor, proud and deceived man had an argument for every point that he made. He was articulate and very skilled at arguing to the point of being illogical. The saint could no longer speak to him. Although the saint humbly asked to change the subject, the theologian not only refused to stop his accusations, his arguing, but he even began to press his point in an offensive manner. And we as priests often come across this, and you, and you lay people will often come across it, when you, someone comes up to you and starts to argue about the faith, saying, for example, why do you venerate icons? Why do you do this? Why do you do that? You straight away, you say to the person, are you orthodox? Are you an orthodox Christian? If they say no or they're not answering you, you cease the conversation straight away. You don't speak anymore. Because at that time, the demon's speaking through the person. So what happens then is it becomes, it terrorises you. So you're better off just to stop the conversation humbly, don't argue, leave the person be, pray for them and pray that God enlighten. But don't go into arguments about matters of faith because, as Christ says, do not throw the holies to the swine and to the dogs because they will tread on it, meaning they'll tread on what you're saying, and then they'll rip you apart spiritually, sometimes even physically. So that's what it means. It means when someone's arguing, Orthodox Christians must never argue. Matters of faith, you just do not argue. And the saint has given us this example in this case, even though this is not a matter of faith, uh, but he's still given us the example. Just sometimes you just go, look, let's, let's see what happens here. He says... Um, uh, the saint could no longer speak to him. Although the saint humbly asked to change the subject, the theologian not only refused to stop his accusations, but even began to press his point. He goes, no, I want to keep on going. And he became rude. When the visitor finally left at midnight, the saint could not get the image of the visitor out of his mind or his sarcastic comment about him being in exile. The saint was terrorised because this Student came here, ex-student, came up to him and said, you know, you've exiled yourself. And that, and that upset the, um, the um, saint. He was very shaken and overcome with doubt as to whether he had made the right decision in leaving the world and helping the nuns in this place and whether this was pleasing to God. He was pained by all this that he felt like crying. So here we see a temptation. And this happens all the time, whether some of you uh, want to have children and then someone comes along and goes, oh no, one's enough, two's enough. 
you know, why do you go to church? Why do you do this? Why do you homeschool? Why do you take your children? Why do your children wear those type of clothes? Why this? Why that? The demons always work through people to bring a per- to make a person doubt. Oh, perhaps that's not right. Maybe I shouldn't have it. Maybe, or you know, like I remember one woman, she was um, happily there, married, having her children, and then um, this woman came up to her and said to her, oh, you know, you're an educated woman, and now, you poor thing, you have to waste your time taking care of children when you could be pursuing your career with your degree. Now, is that satanic or is that angelic? So that's, that's the example. And here we see that the saint is trying to do a good, a good work and he, is, he was tempted. Let's see what, let's see what he does. And, let's, and that will give us advice of what we should do. The Holy Nectaris immediately went before the icon of the Most Holy Theotokos. He prayed on his knees as follows. Dear Lady, Mother of our Lord, you see how the devil came to destroy my spirit today. Now it doesn't mean that the person's a devil. We don't call people devils. He's trying to say that the devil threw the person. The visitor, he said, this is the saint speaking. You see how the devil came to destroy my spirit today. The visitor said that a hierarch should serve the church, that a bishop should serve the church, and that I've withdrawn myself from society for just a few, like a few women. You, O lady, know the truth. I beg you, don't leave me in doubt and confused. I am a little and humble man and I'm simply trying to struggle in a small way. See the humility of the saint. What one can say, the proud can say, oh, he's not a great saint. If he was a great saint, why did he become disturbed? Why did he get knocked around a bit? He should be strong. Why is he on his knees? Why is he saying that, you know, I'm in doubt and confused? But this is, if, if, if he had that, what happens to all of us? And that's, how, and that's how it is. That's spiritual struggle. Great saints had, had, were um, knocked around with doubts and problems and things like that, whether from the demons themselves or through other people. And this is a very good example for us of how we have to deal with doubting thoughts and problems. So the Holy Nectarius, through fervent prayer to God and the Most Holy Theotokos, overcame this demonic temptation, a temptation which tried to crush his spirit. And that will happen to all of us. And ha- will happen. As long as, if you're struggling, it's going to happen. You're always going to have these problems and temptations. People that come, you know, that come to the church and then they say, oh, you know, I've come to the church but then I have thoughts and, you know, how about going out with friends or worldliness or maybe this or maybe that and all these doubts and, and all these uh, things they think about and all these are thoughts to try and get the person to get away from the spiritual struggle. Now, as people, we are weak and we, have, uh, we don't understand the warfare of the demons. This, of course, this saint was progressed and he was able to pray. And it, it doesn't say that he went to a spiritual father to get help. However, 
For us, we pray. If we're left alone, that's good. If not, if it still keeps on coming, then you go to the priest, you confess, ask for help, and a lot of times when the priest reads the prayer, the thoughts go. So the Holy Nectarius, why does it go? Because, sorry, because of humility. See, when we're humble, then God helps. When we're proud, we become worse. So that's why mental illness, there are, there are organic reasons for mental illness. Organic means there's some physical problem. But a lot of mental illness comes from pride. And, I've, and, and, and time and time again, people have said to me that they're, meant, that they're suffering from mental illness, that it becomes worse when they're proud. When they humble themselves, it says it, it kind of goes down, dies down. But as soon as they become proud, uh, arguing, um, judging people, showing off, whatever, whatever, it says the, the madness becomes worse. I had a woman who had a lot of problems. Um, she, was, she was married, but she had a lot of issues with her mind and she would often get attacked um, with thoughts against people and should be uh, pulverised continually. Like you just felt sorry to see her. She'd just be, you know, skin and bones from her anxiety, from her from the, um, the thoughts continue. She didn't take any medication in, at, that, at that time. I um, don't think she ever did, but anyway, that's that person. So what happened was that um, she sometimes come out of it and would say, I'm, 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 you know, what I'm doing is wrong, these thoughts are no good, and sometimes she was so engulfed in them that she couldn't even see that what she was doing was wrong. Anyway... Um, when they're in that mood, you just got to leave them alone and then pray for them. If they're asking for help, yes, but if they're not asking for help, leave them alone and just do commemorations. Anyway, I spoke to her when she was calmed down and, and I said to her, how do you feel? And she said, when I humble myself, it goes away. But when I'm proud, it becomes like a, a volcano where it just explodes, it becomes worse. So that's, we've got to differentiate between organic mental illness, which, is, which could come from thyroid, it can come from some lack, there's a few reasons there, and then we've got um, the other one, which comes from our sins, our pride, and things like that. Uh, after he finished this prayer, he looked at the icon of the Holy Theotokos and felt peace. Then the following suddenly occurred. Something happened supernatural, but I'm not going to talk about it now. I'm going, to come, I'm going to come to it soon. As the years passed, the saint of God dedicated himself more and more to the deeper spiritual life. Even though it was not possible to entirely avoid all contact with the world, he was able to strictly limit the number of visitors to the convent, something that was not possible when he was living in the world, when he was living at the school. A lot of people. But now, in Aegean, especially like, for example, winter, like Manathos, in winter, hardly no one goes there. When, it's, when, it's, when, the, when um, 
the boats would, would, you know, and some of the boats would bring a lot of people, thousands of pilgrims from Germany, from America, from Canada, from England, non-Orthodox, Orthodox Christians, to Manathos. But when the weather's really bad, for example, and the seas are choppy, the boats don't work, then no one can come. So there's all that. But in, for Egina, as I said, it wasn't easy for people to go there, even though it was close. Well, uh, it was, and there's weather and things like that. Apart from his bodily and ascetical struggles, he continually practiced the Jesus prayer. He was now in a better position to focus on spiritual contemplation and unceasing noetic prayer, similar to that of the great monastic fathers. Now, in talks 41 and 42, I did a lot about that, about the deeper spiritual life and how people in the world should not do that. To do these deeper spiritual life, you need spiritual guidance and you need to be in a situation where you're not in too much contact with the world, where you've got isihia, quietness. Remember Elder Haralambos, which was a spiritual child of Elder Joseph the Hesychus from Manathos, that he said that when he was in the desert living with the older, he had the prayer, the Jesus prayer in his heart and and he experienced divine contemplation. However, when he became the abbot of the monastery of the Inusil, then he said that he lost a lot of that because he had too much involvement with people and he couldn't keep up the same practice. So there's now the saint, because he, was, he had more time to be on his own and to lead the deeper life, he was actually able to experience this. His appearance radiated sweetness and serenity of peace, and together with his other virtues, showed that he had acquired the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Remember what St. Paul says, what are the fruit of the Spirit? St. Paul in Galatians says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When someone has the grace of God, that's what they have, that's the fruit of it. Now, we are impatient a lot of times. Are we, what's long-suffering mean? Long-suffering is that we, are, we uh, endure when someone does something to us or when someone's got problems, we kind of tolerate them, we try to help them, all these type of things. Uh, kindness, goodness, gentleness. That's the indication that someone has, has been deified, has, has had... Has, has the grace of God. And what else does Saint Paul say? Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal, like just empty, empty noise. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains... But have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, not vainglorious in other words, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does re not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. 
That's what St Paul is writing as a person, as, as to show us what's the most important thing. Not just doing miracles. That's why I didn't do that thing about that vision earlier. I wanted to say this first. And I've said this in the other talks. People today look for miracle workers and, and gurus and stuff like that. Or if a priest does a miracle, they will run. If I did a miracle, the place would be full here. But um, thanks God for that. Here, we just hear the word of God. So, that's, uh, and that is, that's one of my favourite um, parts of the epistles of St. Paul. It keeps us sober. As soon as we start having thoughts that we're good, that we're oh, that I'm strong, I'm this, I'm that, and you say, but do you have love? Do I have love? No. Do you get irritated? Yes. Are you impatient? Yes. Sometimes we're rude, so therefore we lack love. And if we lack love, it means that we lack the grace of God in us, and that's how we know. See, and it says here, it doesn't, it doesn't um, provoke, doesn't, again, is not provoked, does not argues and things like that. Sometimes I argue, but that, that's because I lack the grace of God. So that's where we have to struggle to acquire it. But let us not think that we've progressed spiritually and have these things of ourselves. His reputation as a saint and wonder worker even spread outside of Aegina. Many Orthodox Christians came to him from all parts of Greece. Through his prayers, he performed many miracles. Now I can talk about the miracles because I've got that up my sleeve. He saved the island from drought twice, I think, if I remember, cast out demons a number of times, healed many sicknesses and comforted, consoled and encouraged all who came to him. Many sinners and unbelievers were converted through his words and miracles. I've got an example of five miracles. There was a certain woman suffering from excruciating headaches who was not able to find healing from any doctor. She went to the saint who uttered a prayer on her behalf and she was cured. Number two, a man from Lamia, which is part of Greece, who was suffering from madness, went to the saint. After the saint had read exorcisms over him, he too was straightaway delivered and returned to his homeland, sane, mentally well, in other words, and glorifying God. In other words, his madness, his mental illness, was from demonic, was, came from demons. While someone else could be, um, meant, could be insane, but for organic reasons, as I said. I was reading the other day that um, when someone, for example, has, an, has a thyroid problem, underactive thyroid, if the levels of the, or whatever they, whatever they, they measure, if the thyroid is not functioning, the person, this was a, a scientific paper, the person shows signs of psychosis. Psychosis means that they actually lose reality. They actually lose reality. And when they go to a doctor and the doctor doesn't, take, doesn't look at the thyroid, um, doesn't you know, have a blood check to check it out, they straight away think, oh, this person's psychotic, he has a mental illness, probably genetic, whatever other stuff that they say, and start giving the person uh, antipsychotic medicine. And at the end, it's not that the person, all they need is the, the hormone, which replaces the, the, thyrox, the um, thyroid chemical that's not being produced, and the person gets rid of all their mental disorders. So this is where I'm saying to you, something like that, 
and some could be demonic and other things. One of the nuns was suffering from a paralysis affecting her head. When the saint was celebrating the divine liturgy at the moment when, that he was communing, she beheld that he was radiant with divine light. So while the saint was serving liturgy and he was communing, he all of a sudden became engulfed in, that, in, the, in the divine light, which is very exceptional when that happens. She hesitated to draw near. He asked her, why don't you approach, come forward to commune? She communed the mysteries from the hands of the saint. He touched the back of her head and immediately she was delivered from her sickness by the grace of the saint. So that's the third miracle. That just was just some examples. Number four, a certain seven-year-old girl had been suffering from a continual high temperature for years. The parents brought the child to the saint because the doctors weren't helping, who completely cured her. And number five, another girl who was engaged was suffering from a neuropathic condition, or rather what they say, delirium, some type of um, rest. Well, I looked it up anyway. It's restlessness, confused thoughts and speech, distorted reality, just mentally wasn't well. The saint perceived that she was a victim of magic and satanic energy. So we come to another thing now. She went to the saint and confessed. After the saint read certain prayers over her while placing his vestments over her as well, like he puts his bishop's vestments on top of her, she was delivered by the grace of God which was working through the holy nectarius. So I had like a, an assortment of examples there. As I said last time in the last talk, yes, we go to the doctor, yes, even sometimes psychiatrists, and ask for the prayers from the church together. I feel sorry when I see people that just run into the doctors, running here, but they never run to the priest just to even get a prayer. And a lot of times that can just be all that they need. Sometimes it's not. It depends on how God wills. He performed many miracles and wonders. So the people of Ayana considered him their protector and patron. They openly acknowledged his wonder-working power, which he received from God. The people of Ayana rejoiced to have such a God-bearing man living on their island. So we go on. Now we go to the visions. St. Nectarius had a number of visions. And as you know, I'm anti-visions. You all know that from my talks. I am reluctant to talk about visions because of the danger of because of the danger of people falling into deception. Right? I always talk about demonic visions and, exp and explain that. But I'm very careful not to talk about divine visions because as soon as people hear it, they just start to fly in the air and they start thinking, I'm going to see a vision and things like that. But now we can, we can talk about the visions because we have an example of a saint and to see, well... Why was he allowed to see visions? And why were his visions real? By looking at his life. But having heard this life in detail, we can now see how one becomes a saint. What, let's see what he, what he went through. Afflictions, sufferings, slanders, persecutions, the spiritual struggle that he did with, with his passions, etc., his prayer life, the studying of the word of God, his humility, his love for one's enemy, which is really difficult, as we all know, to practice. When someone hates us, how much can we love them? It's very difficult, and that's where we need God's grace to help us love our enemies. Anyway, he, he did that. Free of self-trust. 
How do we know he was free of self-trust? He would continually seek God's will. His liturgical life. See, when you hear that someone's a saint but has nothing to do with the divine services, then what's going on? You hear someone's a saint, but they are not orthodox in their dogma. Something's going on. Someone's orthodox in their dogma, but they don't forgive their enemy. Something's growing wrong. And hence the talk that I did before, talk 47, or what I've forgotten now, are we leading a balanced spiritual life? And here we see that in practice. The saint was not just in one part, but he practiced all of the commandments. Serving one's neighbour. He also had the, the right conditions, which is isichia, quietness, to, to, to be able to enter such as uh, um, that level of, of spirituality. And orthodoxy of faith. Next talk, I will speak about his writings and what he wrote about the Western Church, Catholicism, Papism, whether, whether he, he also says whether, because even from back then they'll talk about union with the Western Church, and he writes about that. And he, he writes whether he believes there will be a union or not. And, and he was 100% orthodox. So as I said, there are some people that are orthodox. They keep, they even keep the calendar. They might say, oh, I'm with the old calendar and I am orthodox and I don't believe in ecumenism, I don't believe in heresy, and yet they open up their shop on Sunday. Here in Sydney, there are people like that who actually, um, who actually own a shop and they don't have to open up on Sunday because no one, no, no one goes. It's only two people. And... They open up on Sunday and yet they put down everyone for being ecumenists or they're there or they're with the new calendar or they're not this. And they even say things like, um, which is just unbelievable, that they actually say things like, oh, in Greece it's gone off. They even open up their shops on feast days. And then the person says, but you open up on feast days as well. And so it's just you kind of... Think to yourself, what is that? I think it's schizophrenia. Has to be. There's no other solution. There's no other answer for it. Spiritual schizophrenia. And yet, they keep their oils. They won't have oils Wednesday and Friday. They won't do this. They won't do that. So they're strict in certain parts. But they've got no problem if someone contradicts them to rip them apart. They will rip them apart because they believe that what they're doing is for orthodoxy. But the saints didn't do that. Here we have a saint in front of us and didn't even do it. Now let's see what the vision was. After that student, the ex-student left, um, the ex-student that was um, rude to him, left and then the saint prayed and then he prayed to the mother of God then he felt peace. Suddenly, this is what happened. After he finished the prayer, he looked at the icon of the Holy Orthodox and felt peace. Then the following suddenly occurred. The Holy Notarius heard the sound of faintly ringing bells. That's a no-no straight away. As soon as you start hearing noises, if you start smelling things, all those things, the fathers of the church say that you don't believe. But let's see the saint here. 
He immediately crossed himself and lit a candle. He then saw the shadow of three women on the wall. Same thing. When you see anything, you're not supposed to believe in that either. Hallucinations, he said to himself. Hallucinations, like, you know, perhaps I'm exhausted from the vigil service last night. So he started thinking, maybe I'm seeing things. He didn't say to himself, I am, I'm seeing a vision because I'm worthy. He had doubts, what's going on here? While people that are deceived straight away welcome a vision or whatever, they, whatever they're seeing, a dream, even a, even a dream. And people believe their dream, believe their thoughts, believe if they see something. Perhaps they are mer-bearers, he thought to himself. Di holy Theotokos, could it be the enemy again? Meaning the enemy, the first enemy was through the student, and now he thinks that the devil is bothering him again. Maybe he's trying to deceive me. You know how sceptical I am about dreams and even more about visions and apparitions. So the saints actually pray to Mother of God and say, and says, you know that I am against those things. Suddenly, he faintly heard harmonious music, and, and that's another thing which you shouldn't believe. But anyway, when this ceased, he heard the voices of people saying, singing, he heard some singing. One of the women sang, you go first, Theodosia. The other woman sang, are you following me, Paraskevi? The first woman replied, singing always, and how about Kiriaki? Then the third woman sang, I am following, I am last to follow the angelic sound. Then suddenly the three women disappeared. The Holy Taurus was amazed because they were the three virgin martyrs who he especially venerated during his first difficult years of monasticism on Chios. So, something important. How do we know that's a true vision? Well, one, there's no publicity about it. Like false visions, it's straight away the person saw a vision, the person saw this, everyone finds out, then people start running. Here, no one, I don't think even anyone knew about it. This is only, this is only was said after he died. And the saints were the first that would never want their spiritual experiences really to be publicised. So there's already humility there. And the other thing was that what he led a spiritual life and a holy life that was fully balanced. And especially the way you know is the fact of his love and a person who's deceived or a person who's not leading, a person who hasn't progressed in the spiritual life like all of us, one of the greatest indications that we are off is when someone goes against us, how we react, how it's hard to forgive, how we think about them, how we wish that they something happens to them or things like that. And it's like a, a, that's, that can be a struggle. But this saint would forgive his enemies and he was persecuted and you will see more. It was now 1913, nine years since the convent was founded. The first four years the nuns were on their own, the next five years he was there, the saint. He was now 67 years old with much prayer, donations, physical work and economising. The convent had progressed significantly. The cells for the sisters had been completed and the guest house, which was situated outside the convent, had now been completed. 
The sister, sisterhood had increased to 24 sisters that were made up of nuns and novices. In the same year, 1913, seeing the spiritual work that Holy Nectarius was accomplishing at the convent uh, on Egina, the evil one began a new persecution. Now, see, our attitude would be, well, now that he's seen a vision, he's so holy, he's not going to be tempted by the devil anymore. See, that's, that's how we think. We think, oh, he's holy, he saw a vision, there's no more problems. But when you read the lives of saints, they can have as many visions as they want, but their persecutions and their suffering went right to the end. Now the new persecution, what is it? Rumours had been begun circulating around Athens that Metropolitan Theoklitos had withdrawn his verbal permission to establish the convent and to have it officially recognised. Remember when he went to the office, he goes, oh, welcome, and yes, I will bless it, and yes, tonsure the nuns, lay the foundation stone, build the chapel, um, yes, all that, you have my blessing, I'll even send others, girls there, etc. He was now threatening to close it. These rumours also reached the convent of Eyna. The saint, through prayer and trust in God, remained steadfast through this most difficult period of uncertainty. Another sign of his holiness. See what I said before, when people go through afflictions, they don't even pray, they forget, they lose themselves. Woe me, why does God allow this? But the saint, yes, he was pained, yes, he was upset, but he would always go to prayer to calm him down, to help him. The nuns, however, not being as spiritually progressed as him, were very upset and fell into despair, like we do. As soon as we have a problem, we fall into despair, hopeless. They were worried about where they would go with no money if they were forced to leave. The Holy Nectaris counselled them not to be afraid, but to place their trust in God and his Holy Mother. He said to them, God shall not let this happen. Our God who sees all has not overlooked us. He shall not allow them to close our convent. Let us maintain pure hearts, practice the monastic spirit, remain vigilant in faith and oneness of mind, and I am confident that Our Lady Theotokos shall intercede again for us before her almighty son. Why again? Because she constantly helped him, constantly. So he was saying to the nuns, calm down, trust in God, trust in his mother to help us in this situation. He himself, as a true example of patience and faith, prayed fervently regarding this temptation, both in private and while serving the divine liturgies. The priests especially are strong when they, when they serve the liturgy and they pray in front of the holy gifts during the liturgy. That At that time, heaven comes down to earth. Um, we have to ask the question... Why did Metropolitan Theoclitus change his mind? It had been five years since the Holy One had moved to Aegina to be with the nuns in order to guide them and help in the establishment of the convent. Why now? Why five years later? What's, what's the problem? What's his, what's, his, um, what's his problem, in other words? Metropolitan Theoclitus had hinted, okay, you're establishing the convent there, but you shouldn't become overly concerned with the building and the establishment of the convent. This, I think this happened before he left when he was still in Athens. Also, around that, the time that St. Nectar, Nectarius submitted his resignation to Rosaria's school, 
Metropolitan wanted the saint to preach throughout Athens and Piraeus against the many heresies that existed there. That's what you remember. So that's what the, you know, the, the bishop, the Metropolitan, was okay about it, but he didn't want him to be overly concerned. Okay, you're going to help them, but I want you to help me. I want you to go around and preach. I'm losing people. Now, the saint had been in Eyuna for five years and that it was obvious that this was permanent, was now permanent. The Metropolitan had become very angry. It seems that he did not agree that a person with the education and gifts of the holy Metropolitan Nectarius should be wasting his time with some illiterate nuns in the wilderness of Eyuna. It seems that to some extent he had the spirit of those times, which was a little bit... Okay, monasteries and all that, but they're not that important. The most important thing is preaching and other things. Not seeing monasticism as, the, as that important. The Metropolitan wanted him to leave the convent and return to Athens to resume his work as a preacher. That's what was bothering him. There was a desperate need for good preachers in Greece, especially at this time with the forming of many new heretical groups. I don't know if Jehovah's were around in there, but there were all these different heretics that were coming into Greece. The problem that Metropolitan Theoctetus was having was that there were no preachers on the same level of Saint Nectarius, as Saint Nectarius. Many Orthodox Christians were being deceived and leaving the church, and for this reason, the Metropolitan was in desperate need for the saint to return and preach against the heresies. Now, one book says, I goes, oh, when you read the Metropolitan, Metropolitan Theoclitus' letter, which we're going to read in a minute, he goes, you can see that he, he was jealous. I don't, I don't, personally, I don't think he was jealous of the saint. I think that as a bishop, a lot of them do it, they even do it now, you know, when you've got a monastery and they've got a priest monk there and, they go, and then they say, okay, I want you to go and serve that parish and go and serve that parish and go here and go there. And the person goes, I'm a monk. I don't want to go and do those things. And they get upset. Because no, I, I, I demand that you go and do that. And there's like a persecution against them because in their minds, okay, the monastery is a monastery, but, you know, the, I need you to go to the churches and I want you to do this and I want you to take care. That priest is sick. You take care of that parish or go and preach there and do these things. I think that's what was happening here. Seeing that the Metropolitan had not softened with regard to closing the convent, because some time had passed, the Holy Terrorist decided to write a formal petition uh, to him asking that the convent be officially recognised. Are we up now? So now the Metropolitan, now the, the, the saint writes a letter to Metropolitan Theoclitus of Athens regarding this matter that he wants to close the monastery and things like that. So he writes to his eminence, etc., um, the most reverend metropolitan of Athens and president of the Holy Synod, Lord Theoclitus, Your Eminence, I have hoped not to trouble you with the affairs of our holy convent because I understand that you are very busy. However, I am compelled due to the circumstances. The holy convent in Aegina, which was established with your blessing, is in urgent need of your help in order for it to be recognised as a legal entity with official office bearers. In this way, the convent will be able to receive donations, buy and sell, and own property in its own name. You see, 
I was recently informed by a renowned lawyer, then he wrote the lawyer's name and address, that up until now, all our contracts and purchases have no legal binding because the convent is not a proper legal entity. Therefore, the vendors, meaning the shops and suppliers, etc., may seize them with minimal legal action. He also, he also has advised me, the lawyer, that because the convent is in my personal name, um, because he had to put it in his name uh, when they donated it, because at that time the syndicate hadn't recognised it. So it had to go somewhere, so he put it in his name, uh, waiting for it to become a legal uh, monastery, and then he'll transfer it into the monastery's name. So meanwhile, the convent was in his name. He says, he also, the lawyer also advised me that because the convent is in my personal name, my brother and nephews have a right to claim my estate. In other words, he's saying the nuns may not be able to inherit the property after the saints repose. So if he died, and even if he left it in their will, um, as, it, as the law is now in Australia as well, that others can come and claim doesn't matter what you, read, what you wrote in your will. A lot of times if you don't leave children, if you say you leave one of, one of your children out, that, per, that child then can go to court and say, I am a, I am a child of uh, my parents and I deserve a, a, um, a portion, etc., etc. It can drag on for years. So he's saying here that his brother could claim, could make claims, and his nephews, the children of his brother... I informed the sisters of all this and they became very upset and they fell into despair over the convent's future. Up until now, we have not been concerned with seeking recognition from the government because your eminence promised that your approval is enough, as I'm sure you can remember. However, I have now heard that your eminence does not recognise the convent. Whether this rumour is true or not, the public is aware of it, and this has, con this has and continues to severely damage the convent. Then he goes through some legal problems that are, that are occurring because of this. It's very interesting because we've seen a saint who has experienced the divine light of God is involving himself with all these things. So some, that's what I'm saying. When some people read the serical books, they read the wrong books, and they think, okay, the saint lived in the desert and he didn't care about money and didn't care about this and didn't care. That's them. That's exceptional. But here, it's not the same thing. This is a monastery in the world and it needs legal things. To go and live in the desert, you don't need to pay rates. You don't need anything. It's just you just go. Now he goes, a Mr. Milanopoulos has a daughter who wishes to join the monastery. He has given his daughter a house in Piraeus as a dowry, prika in other words, as we say in Greek, which has been valued at over 30,000 drachmas. However, she will only be allowed to receive the rent, and after her death, the house will have to be donated to an orphanage. Um, and all this because the convent has not been recognised as a legal entity and is therefore unable to receive property that has been left to it in a will. We also have a house which someone left to us in a will, but basically saying we can't touch that as well. And also the house of a lady that has helped the monastery. She left, uh, she's going to leave us a house. We can't touch that as well. Also, a donation of 2,000 drachmas has been deposited in the bank 
but there is a possibility that we will lose this because we do not have the legal right to withdraw the fund. We do not have a legal seal for the convent. You know, seal like a, uh, it's called a seal. So when we, our monastery's got a seal. You, you, you stamp it, it's called the monastery seal, and then it's signed, and that's the legal binding. But these, they, they don't have that. It's not, it's not legal. Uh, three of our nuns have properties and we would like to sell them and then deposit the money into a bank account in the convent's name. However, as long as the convent is not recognised by the church, we are unable to do this. We are truly at a loss of what to do. For all the reasons above, I am forced to request from the Minister of Religion and Education, that's the, that's the, the um, government part, that the convent and its seal be recognised. In other words, he's saying, I won't, if you're not going to recognise it, then I'll go to the, to, the, um, to the ministry. I did not approach your eminence regarding this as I was afraid of troubling you. I wanted the ministry to seek your eminence's opinion on this rather than you making the request yourself because I thought you would not be happy with this. The problem has arisen as to whether the convent will be recognised by both church and state as a private monastery under the metropolis of Athens or be recognised by the state as an ethico-religious institution with the nuns as members similar to the monastic institutions in the West. Out of respect and love for your animus, I will accept whatever the solution is for this problem, Nectarius of Pentapolis. He suggested, in other words, to the Metropolitan of Athens, that either the convent be recognised by both church and state, which is the way it's done, as a private monastery under the uh, Diocese of Athens, which is the correct way, or that it be recognised by the state as an ethico-religious institution, which means a non-profit organisation, which is not done in Greece. In other people would be shocked to say that the same would even go to such an extent, but that's how much he was. He wanted the monastery to be protected. He wanted the nuns to be protected. He knew that once he's gone, that they can actually throw them all out, and he was willing. If the, gov if the church wasn't going to recognise it, he was willing to go and have it recognised as a non-profit religious organisation, which is the way it is here, a lot in, in, um, in, um, in, in the West. The saint did not wish this, but what else could he do to protect the rights of the nuns in the convent? After he had written the letter, the entire matter, he left the entire matter to the Mother of God. He informed the nuns of how he wrote to the Metropolitan, and that they should not be troubled and to continue the monastic life in joy and hope. Furthermore, he said that if God were to allow temptations, then it must be for the salvation of our souls, another orthodox teaching. See what he said? Okay, I've, I've written my letter. If because of this we are persecuted, or there's all these temptations come, then, that's, then we have to look at that as being sent by God for our salvation. The saints looked at temptations, sufferings, sicknesses, slander, all these things, the saints looked at it as being something that was beneficial for their soul. We, unfortunately, a lot of times don't look at it like that. We look at it as something which is off, or God is angry with me, or why, you know, I pray, I, I go to church, I do this, I do that, I give money to the poor. Why is God allowing these things to happen to me? And this is a wrong um, attitude. Metropolitan Theoctetus had earlier asked the Holy Nectarius to help him with, the, with his problem with the heretics who were influencing Orthodox Christians with regard to the Holy Cross. The heretics must have been telling the Orthodox not to do their cross or venerate it, something that the Jehovah Witnesses teach even today. 
the saint decided to write and publish a little booklet on the topic of the history of the Holy Cross. He even wrote a dedication in the booklet to the Metropolitan in order to soften his heart. The dedication read as follows. This book is dedicated to the most holy Metropolitan of Athens and President of the Holy Synod, Lord Theoctetos, as a token of my utmost esteem and brotherly love for him. So in other words, we can say the saint was like, Doing this, like St. Paul says, when someone's bad to you, then you do good to them. If you do bad to them, then it makes them worse. So when someone's doing something bad to you, then you do good to them to drown out that bad. To, you know. So that's what the saint was doing. So he goes, I'm going to write this book and I'm going to dedicate it to Metropolitan and hopefully that will soften him. He was hoping that he would change his mind regarding the closing of the convent. Uh, the only problem here that I found is that the, the Metropolitan requested that about five years ago. And the, I, don't, I don't understand why the saint took so long to actually write the booklet. And I've got a feeling perhaps he was so involved with the monastery. I don't know, it's just it's five years is a long time. And one has to say, I think even that would have um, bothered the the bishop there of Athens, to, you know, say I asked for him to write something and he hasn't even written it. Why he didn't write it, I don't know. But the thing is he didn't, he didn't do it and it took him five years to get, to, do, get to, to do it. Eleven months had passed and the Holy One had not received a reply from Metropolitan Theoctetos on or an acknowledgement of the little book that he wrote and published and dedicated to him. So he ignored the book, ignored the letter. Eleven months had passed. During this time, the rumours about the Metropolitan closing the convent continued. The Holy Nectarius decided to write a second letter in June of 1914, which is just before the First World War, by the way, again asking that he recognise the convent. And he wrote another letter to him, to his eminence, etc., etc., Metropolitan of Athens. The once deserted monastery had already been, has already been transformed into a holy convent, and I truly believe that it beautifies the island of your archdiocese. Since your eminence is the proper ecclesiastical authority, I request your approval for the establishment of this convent and for it to be recognised as a private convent operating under the holy metropolis of Athens. Some monasteries were owned by the diocese and some monasteries were owned by the monastery itself. The saint didn't want the diocese to own it, he wanted the nuns to own it because of the fear that they can be persecuted by the bishops. My wish, Your Eminence, for this convent is not only for it to become a shining example of the holy monasteries in Greece, but also for it to be an honour to your diocese and a place of great benefit to those who come to it. For this to become a reality, I leave it up to Your Eminence to write up the rules of the convent. The name of the convent will be the Holy Trinity, Etc., 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 without my respect, I remain your most obedient servant, Nectarius of Pentapolis. Together with the persecution from the, metropol from, from the Metropolitan, there were also many other concerns that demanded the saint's attention. So, not only did he have all those problems with the, the, the Metropolitan of Athens, he still continued to collect donations for alms giving and for the charities who would often ask for his help. Remember that a lot of organizations, charities, from the last talk, used to approach him and say, look, there was a fire there, there was a flood there, did this happen, this happened, you know, can you please help us? And he would help them to collect money to give to them, 
but at the same time he also needed money for the convent. Many times there would not enough there would not be enough to pay the convent's labourers, the men that were working there. He would always pray to the Theotokos for a solution. See how we learn from that? He would pray to the Mother of God for a solution. He would try his best to do things as a human, collect the money, ask people, but when it ran out and he had to pay the people, then when that's and that's the best prayer. Prayer which is done when there's no human solution is the best prayer. Because then we let ourselves and say, There's nothing we can I can do, you leave it to God. When it came time to pay their wages, you see, um, the Abba said to him, should we tell the men to come on Monday to pay them? We're not going to have money. And he says, tell them to come. God will take care. The mother of God will take care of everything. And what would happen is, on the day that the men would come to pick their, up their pays, it says he envelopes with donations arrived in the post that same day from all over, mostly from Egypt, even from Canada. The Theotok was always provided when the saint had need. See, we have to have that trust, don't we? On 28th of July, 1914, the First World War commenced. Greece had not entered the war at, that, at this time. The reason for this is that King of Greece, Constantine, was married to the sister of the Kaiser of Germany. You know, they all used to mix and things like that. So uh, the king of Greece, his wife was the sister of the, one one can say, the emperor of uh, Germany. And the war was between Germany and the allies, which were France and England and things like that. And the king didn't want to do that. Um, He also underwent military training in Germany he, he actually had a, like a relationship with Germany. Metropolitan Theoctetus was a supporter of the monarchy and like the king, he was against Greece joining the war. You see, the Allies wanted Greece to join the war, but the king didn't want to and either did the Metropolitan of Athens. They wanted Greece to remain neutral. However... The Prime Minister of Greece, Eleftherios Venizelos, who was also a Freemason, he was a Mason, wanted Greece to join the war on the side of the Allies. So the Prime Minister of Greece wanted to go into the war. The King of Greece didn't want to go into the war. So it's like England. You see, England's got the Queen, but separate to that, there's a Prime Minister, etc. So it's like, I don't know how, how... I don't understand Greek history much of what happened there, but anyway... Uh, Venizelos was a Mason. And a Mason, you can't be a Mason and an Orthodox Christian. You're either one or the other. Because Masons believe in this architect of the universe and other stupidities there. And it's, and it's, and it's uh, uh, um, contrary to the Orthodox faith. Actually, um, the Synod of Greece has anathemas against anyone who becomes a Mason. Anyway, let's go on. It was now September 1914, three months after the second letter that the Holy Nectarius wrote to the Metropolitan and 14 months after the first letter. No reply. At this time, the Holy Nectarius received a formal... But finally one came, yep. Up to 14 months, there was no reply. At this time, the Holy Nectarius received a formal and severe letter from Metropolitan Theoclitus accusing him of breaking the canons. 
In the letter, Metropolitan Theoctetus denied having any knowledge of the establishment of the convent and demanded a written reply to a series of questions regarding the convent's um, members, finances, donations, spiritual direction, etc. So all of a sudden, this person who said, yes, yes, bless, bless, have the monastery, open it up, tonsure the nuns, now he's saying, I never told you to do that. What's that? Spiritual schizophrenia, we said that before. My soul is deeply sorrowed by having been informed by your eminence, meaning Metropolitan, Hectarus, that without my knowledge and consent, a community of women have been formed in Egina under your direction and that the number of members is increasing up until now, that cells have been built through donations, that there exists a chapel, because if he doesn't know about the chapel, which he's the one that blessed it, Anyway, and in general, you are guiding this community as if you are the abbot of a recognised monastery. In addition, you have tonsured these women and you serve liturgies, etc., etc. It goes on. My soul is deeply sorrowed because you are fully aware because you are fully aware of the holy canons of the Orthodox Church, in particular, the fourth canon of the Fourth Ecumenical Council, which reads, quote, "It is determined that no one anywhere should build or form a monastery or chapel." without the permission of the local bishop. See, they always come out with these canons. They break all the canons, by the way, but then all of a sudden when you do something that, that, that they come out with, with these canons. Your eminence has proceeded to do the above mentioned without taking into consideration all that should be done prior to this. He goes, you've broken the canons, he's saying. He then continues to say that as a canonical hierarchy, has the right to investigate the matter, and he asks, and then he asks us some questions. I've only picked some of them. Question one: Why, without my knowledge and permission, the canonical hierarch of the diocese of Athens, did you establish the above-mentioned community, and for what purpose? B: What is the current number of women who make up this community? In your answer, I want to know the following details. The full name of each woman, previous address, the date she joined the community, and if she was tonsured, I want to know the date and the place of the tonsure and who performed the tonsure. Three, the number of rooms that have been built for these women, what was the cost of building these rooms, who donated the funds to meet their exp these expenses, what is the name of each donor, this, and what is the sum do donated. D, what saint's name is the chapel of the community dedicated, but he wrote it in the... Second letter, it's dedicated to the Holy Trinity. What money was spent on the building of the chapel and who donated the money? If the chapel was consecrated, what date did this occur? Who conducted the service? Were the proper guidelines followed for the building and cons consecration of the chapel? And the next one, five, what guidance does your eminence offer to the general life of the community? I'm waiting a written reply from your eminence on all of the above questions as soon as possible. I remain your eminence's brother in Christ, most obediently yours, Theoclitus of Athens. I like this one, most obediently yours. Well, if he's obedient, what isn't he just bless the monastery to be established? But anyway, that's another point. So that's a problem there. After reading the letter a number of times in shock, St. Nectarius was deeply distressed by the Metropolitan's lies and unjust persecution. He whispered to himself, May God forgive you, my brother, so now you say that you had absolutely no knowledge of the establishment of this holy place. End quote. May God forgive you, my brother. That's the, 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 and he meant it when he, when he said it. So... Now you say that you had absolutely no knowledge of the establishment of this holy place. So he's saying, how can you say that when you're the one that blessed it? 
The saint then made the sign of the cross three times and said, Jesus Christ, the Saviour, is victorious. As was his practice in times of sorrow, what did he do? He knelt and prayed with all his heart in front of the icon of the Most Holy Theotokos. He prayed to the Holy Theotokos and to God, please do not forsake us, your humble servants, in our time of sorrow. He was very concerned that the nuns could fall into despair when they hear this news of what the Metropolitan uh, wrote. He then spoke to Abbas Xenia, that's the blind one, about the Metropolitan's letter and his questions. She asked the Holy One whether he thought the Metropolitan would persecute them. And he answered, I'm not sure, but perhaps not. He then advised the Abbas that temptations will always come to those who struggle in the spiritual life. That's the answer. Because it's all the time we always say, I don't understand why am I going through problems if I'm leading a spiritual life. Why is there a problem with my children? Why am I having problems? Why am I got bad thoughts? Why am I being hit? Why are people going against me? Why all these problems, financial problems, or whatever happens to us in our life, sicknesses, deaths, and people... I remember one woman who, who was like a neighbour, she used to say things like, um, oh God, God hates me so much and that's why I've got all these problems. You try to say to her, but that's not, that's not correct, but you just they don't understand. But that's beautiful advice. He said to the abbas, understand, Reverend Abbas, understand the following. Temptations will always come to those who struggle in the spiritual life. As I said earlier, always, right to the end of our death, as we'll notice. He sorrowfully wrote a detailed reply on the 10th of October 1914 to his eminence, Metropolitan of Athens, etc., with great respect. Glory be to God in replying to the document you sent on the 30th of uh, last month. I hereby inform you of the following. One, we have not established a new monastery in Agina and would not without the knowledge of your eminence. It was with your eminence's permission that we visited the old abandoned monastery on Agina for the purpose of settling some pious women in it to become nuns. Remember, he went there and asked the Metropolitan, can I go over to Ayana and look at this monastery? He goes, yes. I gave them my support and took on the, res well, the responsibility of managing the expenses for the re-establishment of the convent, and all this was done with your good wishes and blessing. When I returned to Athens, I spoke to your eminence about that visit and asked your permission to take on the responsibility of re-establishing the convent using my own money in order to settle the women there. When your eminence set, sent a written reply, I then sent this reply to the women on Ergina who still have it in their possession. In other words, you know, he's saying to him, I've got a letter that says that you bless, etc., etc. Now you're saying the opposite. Now people say, but what, how can that be? These people are bishops. Why do these things happen? Other people say, oh, some priests are bad and bishops are bad and this and that. But I always have the example of Christ himself with his 12 disciples and he had 12 disciples and one of them was possessed. One of them was causing problems. One of them was stealing his money, the money that was meant for the poor. And yet Christ allowed that to happen and tried to bring this person to repentance, which of course he didn't. So this is, this is going to happen You'll be hated by all. There'll be five in a house. Two will be against three, three against two, etc., etc. All these things Christ himself has taught us, that this will always happen. 
So don't become scandalous and go, oh, how can the bishop be so bad? This is bad. That means that orthodoxy is not a good church religion because there's these bad people in there and that means that we have to go and find something else. Imagine if the apostles said that too. To help your eminence remember, I remind you that you also said that you would send some pious girls to the convent. See? Two, in regard to the tonsure of the women, I asked your eminence if for every tonsure I would, should I receive new permission from you, and you answered that I should not. So you got permission to do the tonsures. Three, the chapel was dedicated to the Holy Trinity, I dedicated with your permission, and in fact received the holy myrrh from the metropolis, your eminence's assistant that you sent from the metropolis from, um, came and concelebrated with me during the dedication ceremony. So you need myrrh. Myrrh is the, the, the beautifully fragrant oil that the priest uses when he, when after he baptises the baby and puts myrrh on their, the chrism, chrism. But that chrism is also used to consecrate the, the, the holy table. I think they anoint the table over with, with that myrrh. Uh, and every chapel needs to have myrrh from the ruling bishop. They make this myrrh, I think, every great Thursday, I think. I can't remember. Uh, anyway, so he's saying to him, you gave us the myrrh. I perf next one, the la uh, number four. I perform, all, I perform all priestly duties for the convent. I also guide the convent towards its aim. I, also, I am also involved in the monastery's building works, finances and maintenance, all of which give honour and praise to your God-given diocese. Concerning the money received in the monastery's treasury, the abbess was instructed to give me a detailed list of receipts and expenditures, and I've attached it respectfully, Nectarius of Pentapolis. That's the letter that he wrote back to the um, bishop, to the metropolitan. Time passed, but St. Nectarius did not receive a response to his detailed reply, the one I just read, which caused him much distress. However, at last, at least, rumours regarding the Metropolitan's desire to close the convent lessened. It seemed that the letter had a bit of an influence. And, you know, I had a thought as well. I don't know how much this Metropolitan really wrote the letters himself. He could have actually got one of the priests there in the diocese to do it and um, therefore not really known what was... Because just to me it sounds, can this person really rule the church and at the, and, and at the same time need to be heavily medicated? It's just, it's just you can't understand what's going on, how he can actually... He's like he's in delusion or something. However, the saints still wanted very much for the convent to be recognised as an official monastic community. He was now considering to have the convent recognised as an ethico-religious institution, legally independent of the Church of Greece, like I said before. This desire was motivated by his concerns for the protection of the nuns and the future of the monastery. Because the Allied forces were trying to force Greece to join the war, there was fear in Greece that a great hunger would occur because they're going to do some blockades. I don't know what that exactly what all that's about. I didn't do modern history at school. But there were some blockades that set up, so I think boats couldn't get to Greece and there was all these problems. And therefore, um, the people were scared they are going to be starvation. This is, so um, the nuns wanted to store extra wheat and food and other supplies for their own use. They wanted to start storing things away for 
a rainy day. In other words, if there's no more food, for them to have food just in case they starve. Their Holy Spiritual Father, however, strictly forbade them saying, if you do what you are thinking, we shall for sure starve. He taught them to rely from day to day on the mercy of God and to give away anything that remained to the poor. He said, when poor people come, we feed them. We mustn't hoard the food. This, uh, this is a very big example of his love that he had, which I was trying to tell you before. Not that he just did miracles or saw visions or preached or whatever, but this is he, 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 had the, he had his life was a life in Christ. They obeyed their Holy Spiritual Father, and during those difficult times they always had food. Thus the convent was protected from hunger and starvation, though they needed to economise and eat sparingly. Like, don't eat too much, they had to economise. They were able to provide for themselves through their harvest and donations. Indeed, so they still got donations. Indeed, not only the sisterhood, but also those who came to the convent during that period were fed. Many in similar circumstances lacking faith would have hoarded food at the cost of the hungry. In other words, it's the, 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 it's the person that's writing the life saying, we would have put money to the side or put some food to the side just in case. And if someone came to the door and asked for food, we wouldn't give it to them because of that. So we have to have the faith to say God will provide. This shows, are we true Christians? Do we trust that God will provide? Well, obviously he did. But the saint had faith that God would provide for him and for his nuns. Because of the conflict between the prime minister, the Venizelos man, and the king, who one wanted to go in the war and the other one didn't want to go in the war. Now, some of you might say, why are you mentioning these things about the war? We want to know about the life. Because the life of the saint is connected to every day. That's what I was trying to say before. People try and say, my life at work is separate to my Christian life. My life in the world is separate to my life, in my, 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 my spiritual life. But it's not. It's connected. The saint's life was connected to the war, to everything. You can't isolate. What did Metropontrodotus do? He excommunicated Prime Minister Venizelos in December 1916. In other words, he cut him off from the church and says, you are not an Orthodox Christian, and he cut him off from the church because there was all these problems between him and the king and all these things. Meanwhile, the Metropolitan had an Archimandrite visit the convent in Eyna every month or so to examine the situation and there and to take statements from different people and then to report back to him. So even though the rumours slowed down that he's going to close the monastery, he did send this priest over every month or so to examine what's going on over there and report back to him. But with prayer, patience and forgiveness, he was able to endure these frequent, horrible interrogations because this person would come over and ask questions, etc. On the 30th of June, 1917, Greece officially entered the First World War. Three months after this, on the 11th of October, 1917, Metropolitan Theodosius was dethroned by supporters of Prime Minister Venizelos because of his involvement in politics. The Metropolitan supporter, King Constantine, had been forced to leave Greece and was not able to protect his friend, Metropolitan Theodosius. In other words, 
um, they, they threw the king out. And then Venizelos, um, the prime minister's friends, got back at the, at, at the Metropolitan of Athens for excommunicating him and knocked him off the throne. He was no longer Bishop of Athens. With Metropolitan Theodotos gone, and the fact that there was no Metropolitan of Athens for some time, the Holonitarius and these nuns were left in peace. They had suffered persecution and endured the threat of the closure of their monastery for five years under Metropolitan Theoklitos. But through God's providence, as I'm trying to tell you, see, everything's connected. And it says, but through God's providence, the former Metropolitan of Athens, Theoklitos, not only failed to carry out his threats to close the monastery, but also lost his powerful and glorious throne. So off he goes. Five months after the dethronement of Theoklitos, Prime Minister Venizelos helped Meletios Metaxakis, who was also a Mason, to become the new Metropolitan of Athens on the 13th of March, 1918. So this person is a notorious person known in Greek history, Meletios Metaxakis, who became Metropolitan of Athens. He later became, if I remember right, Patriarch of Alexandria, and after I think they got rid of him from there, he went over to Constantinople and became Patriarch of Constantinople. He was the one who introduced the calendar change and caused a disaster in the Greek church and all over the world. Um, as a Mason, as I said before, they're only known for their trouble, and he did a lot of damage to the church. So now we have a Mason as the, Arch as the Metropolitan of Athens. The question now arises, will he also persecute the Holy Nectarius and his nuns as the previous Metropolitan of Athens, or will he be more favourable towards them? Not long after his enthronement, the new Metropolitan of Athens, Meletios, and his young deacon, Athenagoras, another name to remember in history, um, he, he became later on Patriarch of Constantinople, and he caused major problems in the church because of his relationship with the Pope and Rome and um, praying together, etc. A lot of people went into schisms, etc. He, he was... A, so all of a sudden you've got the two, some, the two of the worst people in orthodoxy, Meletios Metaxakis and Athenagoras, who was a deacon at the time, who made a surprise visit to the convent of Onegina. When Metropolitan Meletius arrived at the convent, he found the Holy Nectarius doing physical labour outside, digging in the ground, with muddy hands and heavily perspiring sweat all over. He told the Holy One that it was improper for a bishop to be wasting his time doing manual labour. He then saw fit to question all the nuns and afterward left shaking his head. He couldn't believe what he saw. In other words, he was disgusted with the elder, elderly bishop's appearance and, in general, was not happy with the life at the convent. Now we're going to see, the, this is going to be, a, the next thing is going to be a, the biggest temptation that the saint's going to go through. One day a woman named Maria came to the convent to seek help from the Holy Nectarius. She fell at his feet crying and then opened up to him about the suffering she endured from her mentally disturbed and immoral mother. Her mother, whose name was Irene, would often shout and hit herself like, like, like crazy. She was very jealous of her daughter because of her beauty and good character. 
the mother would often verbally and physically abuse her daughter because she was not obedient to her wishes. She kept urging her to follow a life of sin and to give her money. Now, whether that meant she wanted her to be a prostitute, I don't know, but all I know is that she wanted to, was pushing her to do sins and, to, and whether she wanted her to work or become a prostitute, I don't know. Anyway, but she sounds like she was crazy. She was very angry with her daughter because she could not believe that she was still a virgin. On one occasion, she gave her some sweets which contained poison to kill her daughter. After she explained her situation to the Holy One, she begged him to accept her as a novice at the, mon at the convent. He accepted Maria into the sisterhood and she was given into the care of the direction of Mother Xenia. Novice Maria was shown motherly love by the blessed Xenia, the, 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 the blind abbess. Maria's mother, Irene, would often visit the convent swearing and cursing. And that happens to, to, to this day. Children, the people that have gone to monasteries, there are all these people, possessed parents that come there, threatening, bringing police, hitting the priest, hitting the abbot, hitting the abbess, going into newspapers. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a constant battle, and that happens a lot to... Um, and, the, and the government, who are anti-Orthodox in the newspapers, they love it, they publicise it, you know, young girl is being held by nuns and all this type of stuff. So it's a big warfare that the monasteries go through. Same thing happening in... in um, same thing's happening in America with Elder Ephraim, where he's got 18 monasteries he established in Canada and, and um, America. And North, America. And um, he's slandered and persecuted, and there's all these parents. There's actually, some parents have joined clubs and just continually write things about him and, and, and hate him and things like that, saying that he's a, a guru, that he brainwashes the boys there, or the or nuns and things and all that. Not boys, men, but anyway. On one occasion, inspired by the devil, she arrived at the convent in a drunken state and angrily demanded her, her daughter. She made threats that she would burn them all if her demands were not met. That's typical. The Holy Nectarius wanted to protect, meaning that's what happens. They, 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 they do that. One, when I went to Serbia, there was one monk there who was a novice at the time. He was a novice and he said to me, my mother came and she had a, a can of petrol. And she said to the abbot, who's now the bishop, who's now a bishop, but anyway, then he was an abbot, he said to her, he, she said to him, if, you don't, if my son doesn't come home with me now, I'm going to pour this on me and light myself. And the abbot said, just go with her, because it's just like crazy. Some run towards the cliff to jump off. So this is, this is um, regular things. She made threats that she would burn them all if her demands were not met. The Holy Notarius wanted to protect Maria from her evil mother, so he asked her whether she wanted to leave the convent. Maria said that she did not want to go with her mother. Therefore, St. Notarius did not allow her to be handed over. When Irene was told that she could not have her daughter, she left swearing and making threats. She said that she would bring an earthquake to destroy them all. In other words, she promised revenge, and revenge was coming. Shortly after this incident, the devil put the thought into Irene's mind to somehow get to Metropolitan Meletios and slander the Holy Nectarius. But in those days, it's very hard to get an appointment with a bishop. Uh, uh, um, so what she did is 
she sneaked into the diocese office there, went past the secretary there, and, all that, and she actually went into his office. And as soon as she saw him, she began to cry and says, I beg you to please save me, for they have tricked and seduced my daughter, my only child. They charmed her and they then destroy and then and then destroyed her. Woe to me. The Metropolitan asks, Who has tricked and seduced your daughter? What are you talking about? Who else? But that bishop monk in Aegina, Nectarius. People think he's an ascetic, but instead he draws in inexperienced girls and then pushes them towards destruction. In other words, that he defiles them. Who, Nectarius, yes, Nectarius with his group, please save me, bad luck has fallen on me. While Irene was saying this, she fell down, wailing and pulling her hair. Unfortunately, Metropolitan Meletios believed the slanders of the cunning and evil Irene. Well, of course he would. Does the man have any idea of spiritual life? He has the idea of Masonic rituals, but I don't think he'll have any idea of spiritual life. He doesn't have any idea that the slanders can occur, etc., etc. No, he just believed it. A few days after her stage show in Metropolitan Meletios' office, Irene decided to also visit the prosecutor's office in Piraeus, for the Americans that listen to the talk, the district attorney. The prosecutor's name was Gregory. She said to him, My beautiful daughter, this beautiful flower, my only child has been taken from me. See the, hypocr the hypocrisy? Gregory said, Who's taken her? What, what, what's going on? You know, what's happening there? She said, Who else but the devil monk in Aegina? Nectarius. Tragic was the day that he set foot on Aegina. That, and that's how they speak. Um... So Gregory said, how did this monk exactly seduce? Like, how did he trick your daughter? Irene said, obviously by using religion. He promises heaven together with those low lives that he has there, meaning the, the other nuns. You should cry for me, my handsome and brave young man. Right? So she knows also how to praise and get him on side. Then she fell to the ground like Betty Davis, and she did the same thing that she did in the Metropolitan's office. She cried and pulled her hair. The prosecutor was shocked because he had never before heard of such a case. He then permitted her to continue with her slanders and lies, and he filled up seven pages of accusations. Because of these serious accusations against the Holy Nectarius, Metropolitan Meletios and the prosecutor Gregory decided to thoroughly investigate the matter. The Holy One and the sisters had no idea of what Maria's mother, Irene, had done. She, they didn't know what was waiting. In the spring of 1918, Metropolitan Meletios and his young deacon, Athenagoras, again visited Aegina. On the Metropolitan's arrival, the mayor of Aegina invited him to stay at the mansion of a pious man, John, who was a very close friend of the Holy Nectarius. So... When the Metropolitan arrived, the mayor said, you know, because I think his wife was sick, says, look, I'll take you to this pious man, John. He has a big house and your eminence, you know, you can stay there. So the Metropolitan, Metropolitan Meletios goes there and he said, I want Nectarius now. I want to see him now. Tell him to come to me now. The Holy One was notified that the Metropolitan of Athens, Meletius, wanted to see him immediately in the town. So he had to leave the convent and go down there, and it was already um, dark. A few hours later, which was now late evening, the Holy Nectarius arrived by horse at John's home, breathless, 
suffering from prostate pain and very pale. He was white as a ghost. And prostate pain and roan horses just do not go together. The Metropolitan, as the doctor will, will know, and actually I read that uh, there were people that had chronic prostatitis, pilots, for example, people that had to sit a long time. They had to give up their jobs because they couldn't sit on the seats. They, they couldn't do it because it was that painful. Sometimes they can't, it can't be cured. A few hours later he came, so he was breathless, suffering, prostate pain, white as a ghost. The Metropolitan was unmoved when he saw the condition of the Holy Nectarius. He then subjected him to the most abominable verbal abuse that had screaming at him and said, it's not your business to be mixing with nuns. You have brought shame upon the title of bishop. I have actual accusations against you. Shame on you. I forbid you. I'm going to send an examiner, meaning a doctor, immediately. You have caused a big scandal for the church, the doctor you'll see in a minute. While the Metropolitan insulted him for more than an hour, Nectarius only managed to reply, like I said before, you can't speak, when someone's like that, bless thy spirit, holy bishop. So that's what he could say, because the man was in a rage. It's the same when with couples as well. When one has gone into a rage, the other one should shut up, not to cause problems, because it makes it worse. See, when they've calmed down, then you speak to them. A lot of times, if you don't go against them, and, and at that time they calm down, whether it's us or them, then you, the person says, like, I'm sorry for what I've done, etc. But when you, if the person's lost it, and then on top of that, you're going yap, yap, yap more, and it causes more problems, you see? So here, the saint knew there's no point in talking, make him worse. He just sat there, one hour of abuse. Because it was now very late, the Metropolitan angrily said that he had missed his, the fairy because of Nectarius. Because because of him, I've missed my fairy now. The pious John said that he would organise a room for him at the hotel. The Metropolitan abruptly answered, I'm not going to a hotel, I'm staying here, at your house. John said, sorry, Your Eminence, but the guest room is only for the Metropolitan of Pentopolis, this holy man who is standing right here. The room, that room is only for Nectarius. In other words, not for you. The Holy Nectarius, however, insisted that the room be given to Meletios. John tried to convince the Holy One not to, to try to convince him to stay at his home and not leave for the convent in the middle of the night because it was already dark. After this, the sickly Nectarius was helped onto his horse and arrived two hours later at the convent. When the nuns saw him, they were shocked that he returned alone late at night not only physically sick, but spiritually also, mentally, like what he went through, etc. He could hardly speak or walk. He was in, in extreme pain because of the prostate, two hours up, two hours down. And he, had, and he had his hand on his chest because he couldn't breathe and probably upset. And um, the following day, Metropolitan Meletios, together with many of Aegean's priests, arrived at the convent in order to investigate it. The, these priests were against the Holy Nectarius because they felt that the convent's wealth, success in other words, was due to the church services they were performing for the people. In other words, that he was taking their business and therefore would do anything to get rid of him. See, they were upset because people were going up there and asking for memorial prayers for the dead. Or people were going up there to ask for paraclesis, for supplications and holy water or whatever. And, he was get, and they were getting upset 
because they were losing their, 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 their business. Obviously, they weren't very spiritual people. That's, that's, we know that, that that happens. We can't hide the fact that there are priests who do that. The Metropolitan found that the nuns were very pale. So now Metropolitan comes and he starts investigating. He noticed the nuns were pale, thin, sickly to the point that they were close to departing from this world. They were actually, from all the work they had, they had done, and things. he remarked, there seems to be something going on here. Like he said, there's some type of conspiracy, some type of scheming. I personally, I don't know what he meant by that. Did he mean that there's a conspiracy in the monastery or was there a conspiracy from those outside that were trying to put the monastery down? I didn't quite get it. But anyway, he softened. He said, then he said, anyway... Why did you get involved with these nuns and this convent, Blessed One? That's, you know, when you, they say Blessed One, like, um, it's an expression like, anyway, that's, how they, that's like a monastic type of uh, speech. Why did you get involved with them, you know, Blessed One? So now he's a bit soft. The priests, however, were very upset that Metropolitan Miletius had calmed down and left with the opposite attitude than what he had before he arrived. Because they were hoping that he's going to close the place down. A few days later, who comes? The prosecutor of Piraeus arrived at the convent with two policemen. That's the picture there, where there's the two policemen and he's sitting on a throne, which just means, not that he's sitting on a throne, it just means the authority that he had. The, in, um, in orthodox icons, it's symbolic. That symbolism of symbolic for his power. So he came to the monastery there with the two policemen, full of anger, he pushed his way into the convent looking for Holy Nectarius. The Holy One calmly asked him while smiling, because he found him in the office, opened the door, and the prosecutor found him smiling and said, who are you looking for? I'm looking for you, monk. You have made a harem here and you are not even embarrassed. The harem is like the, the, the Turks that had like um, their harem, you know, like 30, 40 wives there. Um, and his son is trying to say he's like a Turk with all these women and things like that. You've made a harem here and you're not even embarrassed. Show me the well that you throw the bastards that those supposed nuns are given birth to, you disgust in low life. In his madness, he actually thought that um, there was all sins going on and there was, that the nuns were given birth and then disposing of the bodies, you know, things like that. The Holy One remained silent and prayed. What can you do when you've got a person that's mad? Can, can't you speak? Have you nothing to answer? He shouted as he hit the table with his hands. Right? He started to smash it on the table. The Holy One remained calm and, and silent. Again, he continued, I want to know where the well is that you throw the babies into. Tell me right now or I'll push you down and step on your throat and I will also one by one pull out the hair of your beard, you dirty old man. After this, as one possessed, he went around the convent interrogating each of the nuns he showed himself to be so despicable and disgusting, he went around the convent uh, everywhere, turning things over, searching for bodies of illegitimate infants born to Nectarius and, and the sisters. So, and he's the prosecutor. So, like, this is um, when you can be educated, like even Hitler was intelligent, but at the end he was possessed. And so someone, what's the point if you've got, if you've got a position if you're going to allow demons to enter into you and become like a, a, like a possessed person. He even ordered the two policemen to look under the blanket 
of one nun who was sick and paralyzed in bed because he thought that she might be hiding a baby that was born dead. So the prosecutor, this is not, this is, look, I've, I've actually experienced a lot of these things. People make up things that you will not believe they make up. The prosecutor then shouted, Tomorrow, old oh man, I will put you in prison. I will send the doctor to physically examine all of your corrupt bodies. Woe to you, you Pasha. The doctor will first examine Maria, who you seduced. So Pasha, as I said, was a Turk who had like many wives and things like that. And, um, and he wants now to do examinations on them. The only response that the Holocaust made to the prosecutor's mad accusations was... God knows that everything you are saying is not true. Throughout the whole time that the prosecutor and the police were committing their horrible acts, the sisters were continually crying and repeating, Lord have mercy, like Kirillation. A fortnight later, the prosecutor returned to Egina, went to the monastery and forcibly removed Maria. She was subjected to a medical examination to prove that her mother's filthy accusations were true. However, the opposite happened. The doctor confirmed that Maria was indeed a virgin. This is the extent that people go to. Because of this evidence, the prosecutor Gregory had no case to proceed with. The case then came to an end. He left the, because she made an accusation, the mother. The accusation was that her daughter was seduced and defiled, etc. That, that was what he wrote in, the, um, in her statement. That's it. The, 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 the daughter was um, still a virgin, which means that's it. The case is thrown out. Um, he left the convent very embarrassed. Now, as a human, well, part, part one, Gregory was tricked by the convincing acting of the demonic Irene. But unfortunately, he did not admit that he made a mistake by believing her. More importantly, he did not ask forgiveness of the saint or the sister. Okay, he made a mistake. He lost himself. He believed his thoughts. Then he should have asked forgiveness. But no, the saint endured this mistreatment with extreme patience, forgiven his false accusers and not seeking to avenge himself because he could have actually reported the prosecutor who would have got in trouble. Some months had passed since the horrible events involving Irene, that's the, that's the mother, Metropolitan Meletios and the prosecutor Gregory Metropolitan Meletius put the matter of the Holy Nectarius and the convent on Egina to the side. He had many more important problems in the church to deal with, especially after the end of the war in 1918. So he says, I'm not going to involve myself there. Plus, I think he had at least a bit of a mind to understand that it wasn't true. And probably the prosecutor would have told him as well. So they just dropped it. So the Holy Nectarius and the sisters of the convent were now left in peace. One day a woman came to the convent and wanted to speak to the Holy Nectarius. When she finally saw him, she fell at his feet and began crying inconsolably. Who do you think the woman is? What? Irene. Irene. Let's have a look. <laughs> forgive us, Holy Father. Forgive my husband. He has gangrene and he is in danger of dying. Who are you and who is your husband? asked the Holy One. I am the wife of the prosecutor Gregory, who a few months ago insulted you. The Holy Nectarius blessed her and said, I, for I forgave your husband from the beginning of his visit to the convent. I will pray to the most holy Theodorus for him. How did he get gangrene? 
The woman said, Your Eminence, the doctors don't even know. He's suffering from excruciating pain. Every minute of the day he's tormented and the, grand, and the gangrene will not stop spreading. The doctors said that his arm needs to be amputated, but my husband will not agree. What hospital is he in? She told him. I would have liked to have visited him, but I'm unable to travel because I'm suffering from a tormenting illness. A prostatitis, in other words. The woman gave him one of her husband's shirts to pray for him. That's a practice they've got over there. They um, take an article of clothing and, and anyway. The saint promised to pray for Gregory, the prosecutor. The Holy One prayed during the liturgy for Gregory, but for reasons only known to God, he died five days later in excruciating pain alone in hospital at night. Even his wife wasn't there. So uh, I think... That speaks for itself, that incident. It had now been approximately 15 years since the founding of the convent, and yet it had not been officially recognised. This caused the Olinitarius much pain and concern. He decided to write to the Synod of the Church of Greece, begging them to formally recognise the convent of the Holy Trinity. His requests were ignored because the Synod was overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly involved in the politics of the time. They were too busy. He did not know what else he could do. One day the saint of God told the nuns, I'm building a lighthouse for you and God will put a light in it that will shine throughout the whole world. Many will see the light and come to Egina. What's he speaking about? Himself. The nuns did not understand these words. However, they would understand them after his repose. It was now 1919. The saint... His health was deteriorating. He was 73 years old, very sick, exhausted and suffering from excruciating pain from chronic prostatitis, a sickness that he would constantly endure for a year and a half. On account of this terrible pain, he was left without sleep. Using all the strength that he had left, he would still perform the services of matins and divine liturgy every day in pain. Throughout his sickness, he never complained but continually glorified and thanked God, which is another sign of someone who has the grace of God. We complain a lot. Uh, saints don't complain. Around November of 1919, his close friend, the pious John, brought a doctor to the convent to examine the Holy Nectarius. The doctor said that he needed to be immediately admitted into hospital and that has a urology department. He also said that the Holy Bishop would probably require surgery and therapy the saint responded saying, we shall see if it's God's will. Now we come to the hospital, now he goes. Finally, after about a year or more, he actually, uh, he actually endured the sickness for quite a while. He didn't go, but later on he went to, an he went to a monastery, prayed in front of an icon, he came back and then he felt that he needed, he, it was God's will for him to go to the hospital. Therefore, the 74-year-old Nectarius, now 74, left the convent in Aegina for the last time and boarded the ferry boat for Piraeus. On the 20th of September 1920, Metropolitan Nectarius was admitted to a state, in other words, a public hospital, for the poor in Athens. He was brought into in by two nuns, one being Mother Ephemia, together with the assistance of his dearest and closest friend, Costas Sakopoulos. He was placed in a third-class room with four beds of which two were only occupied. So he was in one and two more. 
The bed next to the Metropolitan Terrace was occupied by a man who was paralysed from the waist down, having suffered an accident by falling off a cliff while on horseback. The other patient was suffered, suffered from a urological ailment, as did the same. Prostate problems, right? Seeing, this, seeing his humility and simplicity, the hospital staff at first thought that he was just an elderly monk. But then they were surprised to learn that he was the former Metropolitan of Padopolis and the former Dean of Rosarius Ecclesiastical School, because he was famous in Athens and Paris. It was now the 8th of November 1920, the feast day of Archangel Michael and all the holy angels. He was heard by Mother Ephemia saying these last words from his lips. This is the last words he ever said. Are you speaking to me, O Lord? After these words, he took his last breath and surrendered his holy soul in peace and in prayer into the hands of God on the 8th of November 1920 at midnight on the day of the Archangel Michael and the angels. Mother Ephemia trembling called out to him, Your Eminence, Your Eminence. She didn't really know that he had died. Suddenly, a sweet-smelling fragrance filled the room and the whole hospital. All the patients, nurses and doctors wondered where the beautiful fragrance was coming from. The nurse who prepared the dead came and was preparing the holy body of the saint with the assistance of Mother Ephemia. They removed his old woolen undershirt, in his singlet in other words, and quickly placed it, because they didn't know where to put it, and they threw it onto the, on the next bed where the paralysed man was lying. Suddenly, oh the wonder, the previously paralysed man suddenly stood up and walked around the room. As he crossed himself, he shouted, I am cured, I can walk. Glory to God, the undershirt has miraculous power. The nurse and Mother Ephemia both stood shaking in amazement with their mouths open. The fragrant relics were later moved to the hospital chapel temporarily. I think, I was trying to work out why they did that, but I think it was because the smell, the fragrance was so strong that it would be, the, the, it, it was, it, that the patients wouldn't be able to sustain the other two. So they took the, um, the relics of the saint to the chapel until they prepared to, to take him away. The room could not be used for many days later. Although the windows were kept constantly open to air it out, the overwhelmingly strong fragrance remained. The sweet fragrance persisted for days, even though the windows, as I said, were left open. Today, the room that St. Nectarius reposed in is a chapel. So that, that hospital has a chapel, and the chapel was the room that St. Nectarius died in, and they've converted it into a permanent um, chapel. So, that's the end of the, um, of the, of the, I cut a little bit out, I didn't know it was that late. So, uh, So did you end up having the operation? No, I, I must have missed that. Oh, how, how did I miss it? Uh, no, you never so ended you up. You just died in hospital before the operation. The whole never ended up having an operation. The doctors could see that he was approaching his end. He was to spend 50 pain-filled days in the hospital. He actually spent 50 days in hospital, died in hospital. Why couldn't he die at the, at the convent? We will see in the next talk what happened after he died, because then they're going to take the relics to Perez, and then from Perez to Egina, from Egina to the convent. For those that um, weren't present at the service, which is disappointing, these are, there's a little tiny relic of... St. Nectarius, which um, we had at the monastery, um, for those who want to venerate. So let's stand up.
Through the praise of the Holy Father, Lord Jesus Christ, the God of mercy, and save us. Amen.